Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic conversation show. John Suntress here. Great doubleheader for you today. First, we welcome back Mark Miller to the show. Mark hasn't been on for about three years. Uh, it's tough sometimes to get your schedules to uh, coincide, especially when you're dealing with somebody that's on the other side of the uh, ocean. But uh, so happy that uh, Mark found his way back to the States this past weekend, uh, Chicago and New Hampshire, respectfully. And uh, while he was uh, nearby, I was able to sit down with him and uh, have a great conversation. We talk about his current comics, like Chrononauts and Jupiter's Circle, and uh, we talk about some other comics as well. Uh, recent movies like Kingsman, certainly uh, Kick-Ass and Wanted figure into the conversation. His collaborations with Matthew Vaughn. Mark's thoughts on uh, the current superhero television trend. And really, does a lot of his stuff, or could some of his stuff, translate into television as well as it has into films? Uh, those are some of the questions we discuss with Mark in our first part of Word Balloon. Then we wrap things up with a conversation with Gabriel Hardman and Karina Becco. Now, the couple have has uh, collaborated once again on a current image book that is great, Invisible Republic, three issues into the first arc, a sprawling political science fiction thriller that uh, I think is very interesting. The art is beautiful, and uh, despite a couple brain uh, farts on my end during the conversation, we uh, managed to have a lot of fun. And of course, because he's one of my scene-missing guys, uh, and Karina, a big movie buff and occasional scene-missing participant as well, uh, we get into uh, some movies we've seen recently, both old and new, and uh, turns out to be a great, nice conversation. So uh, real good talking to wrap things up today on Word Balloon. First part as well. All brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, as always, for your support. Don't forget, if you want to help contribute to Word Balloon's cause, go to wordballoon.com, click on the uh, tab right there. It says subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon, and uh, it will get you the details on uh, how to uh, subscribe monthly. There's a couple videos there as well. Word Balloon is free. It will always be free. I know you guys are sick of hearing me say this, but I have to underline that, that uh, Word Balloon is not going to a pay model in any time. But uh, what if you would like to help me out and uh, subscribe to the show, if you can spare a buck a month, that would be great. Sometimes I try to give you uh, advanced uh, content before I release it. Uh, I did that, in fact, with uh, this Mark Miller interview that uh, everyone else is about to hear now, where Balloon uh, Patreons have uh, already been, patrons have already uh, enjoyed the interview for a few days now, and uh, I try to do that when I can get uh, good content or other special things like that. So uh, check out all the details at wordballoon.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Man, great deals are happening this week for InStock Trades. You can get things like 50% off the first Spider-Woman trade paperback, Volume 1, Spider-Verse, featuring the work of Dennis Hopeless, but it also reprints that original Archie Goodwin Spider-Woman ser- uh, story uh, from Marvel Spotlight back in the day. It's 50% off. It's just $7.99. You can get... Uh, uh, Captain America, the Epic Collection at 42% off, $20.29. My buddies Art and Franco, Aw oh Yeah Comics, uh, Volume 2 is available through Dark Horse, Time for Adventure, 42% off. It's just $7.53. I rarely talk about manga, but one of my absolute favorite mangas is Master Keaton. I just love those stories. And uh, you can get the uh, graphic novel Volume 3 at 30% off. It's just $13.99. Reach back for some classic EC stories with uh, Graham Engel's Grave Business and other stories. Excellent collection. 30% off. $20.99. That's just the tip of the iceberg. For more great deals, check out all you can find at prices you won't believe in stocktrades.com.
All right, let me take you back to last Saturday morning. Uh, Mark Miller uh, let us know that he was coming to town, and I was so excited, and I contacted him, and I said, geez, you know, you're you're in the neighborhood. Can can we get together? And he's like, oh, absolutely. I'm staying about an hour away from you. And I'm like, all right. So, uh, And he had a 10 in the morning downtown Saturday uh, signing. So uh, I, I got up early uh, and uh, met him at 7 in the morning out in the west suburbs of Chicago. And uh, poor Mark is still on, you know, British time and everything. So uh, he had been, like, walking around since, like, 2 in the morning. And I met him about five hours later. But uh, we had breakfast, and then we went up to his room and had this excellent conversation. There's a little bit of uh, air conditioning in the background. But other than that, as we both are amazed... It is the clearest uh, reception and 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 uh, recording of a conversation we've ever had, including uh, we did one. We kind of mentioned it. Uh, the the last time we saw each other face to face was in two thousand nine at uh, Wizard Chicago. And, uh, God, he had this, uh, much like uh, this past weekend, massive signings and massive lines and stuff. And there was just no quiet corner that we could find at the convention center uh, for the Wizard Chicago show. So we went up to the green room where all the celebrities were hanging out. And we thought we were going to be alone. And a guy with his head buried in his shoulders, hands on his head, just aching, was poor Billy D. Williams. Lando Calrissian himself, looking like he had just lost the Millennium Falcon in a poker game. And we're both like, oh, uh, Mr. Williams, uh, I hope you don't mind. We, we were just going to do this little interview. Uh, we hope we, we're not going to distribute. And he's like, no, that's okay, guys. I just got to clear my head. And we were like, wow, awesome. Sorry. Thank you. And then we went in our talk. So uh, that interview is uh, on uh, one of the old word balloons. I'm sure you can find it. But uh, it is great to uh, have the opportunity to catch up with Mark Miller. And I can't hide my excitement, but I'm sure you're going to enjoy this conversation with Mark now on Word Balloon. My local pub's just gone up for sale. Really? And a bunch of my friends and I were saying, should we get in and buy this pub? And then we suddenly realized what we like about the pub is drinking in it, not actually managing it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it'll be interesting to see how this goes but I think for, for five minutes we were thinking about it and we were working out the maths and things you know that's and hilarious thought, if it costs more than 500 bucks <laughs> we weren't going to buy it if it's under 500 bucks we'd buy it you know? so, <laughs> I'm, now I'm going to listen to this yeah this is the quietest backdrop we've ever had isn't it? it's always yes. glasses clinking and all that kind of thing well yes yeah. or, or like I said it was long distance calls yeah. and stuff yeah. so and, and you know and the great thing is both of us have difficulty under the, understanding the other's accent sometimes <laughs> so it's like what was that word again so Mark Miller it is great to see you it's you know I think it, we were in a three year rhythm and I hope to like close the gap and get it a little bit more recent than that thanks for doing this not at all not at all it's great we should warn everybody uh, that I'm jet lagged and I've been awake since 2am because in Scotland that's when I would have been having my breakfast you know so I do apologise in advance the none of this hour makes sense to anyone Jesus congratulations on everything every year it gets bigger for you and I think that's wonderful at least that's our outside perception <laughs> but uh, I just truly. see myself getting fatter every no, year I no. just see myself getting a little fatter I, I never see the successful side of it you know? you're healthy man <laughs> no and that's you know I was I was listening to our first conversation in yeah. 06 and you were getting over Crohn's and everything Everything. Yeah, health wise, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's been great. I mean, ever since then, that, that was really uh, one one off flare up. Fingers crossed, you know, touch wood and everything. Yeah, very good. Well, let's start with comics. Yeah, doing Jupiter's Legacy and yeah. Chrononauts, Jupiter's Circle and Legacy. I love the story. Thanks very much. Fantastic and. Great to see that you're going into that backstory because reading Jupiter's Legacy, it's like, oh, I really hope we follow, yeah, uh, you know, the, these original characters from the 30s, you know, on and stuff. 
Tell me about both series. Well, it's funny because before I wrote Jupiter's Legacy, I knew I wanted to create my own universe. Right? I wanted to create this universe of characters that are 100 years worth of history and everything. And I actually spent about eight weeks working out the backstory of all these characters you were never going to see. And it sounds insane, but it was just so I knew the world that the, 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 the characters were going to be operating in. So I thought, I've got all these notes. I've got all these stories that are really cool that I really love, you know. And it seems crazy not to make it into a comic. And it was my, my, my lawyer actually said to me, I was telling him about it, and he said, this sounds awesome. He said, you should do this as a book in its own right. And I was like, that would be cool. And, you know, because Frank Quitely really takes a long time over his art and everything, the gap between volume one and volume two was going to be around a year. Um, so it seemed perfect, actually, to run maybe a 12-issue series in that time. So the stars aligned, and it kind of worked out well. And, and it's funny, in some ways, I think I actually prefer Circle 2, I guess. You know, like, there's something about it that's kind of... It's the superhero story I've always wanted to write. Like, I wanted to do a period superhero thing forever, and there's something about that Mad Men era, era that's so DC to me. You know, there's... When I see DC characters in modern times, it almost doesn't look right. You know, like when I see Clark Kent in a baseball cap or something like that, you know, or Bruce Wayne in sneakers or something. <laughs> it seems yes. wrong. I feel these guys should be wearing three-piece suits and have oiled down hair and everything. They should look like John Hamm or, you know, Roger Sterling. Absolutely. And it just feels right having these kind of classic American superheroes in this period of between 1959 and 1965 where the story takes place. And it's such a fascinating time in American history as well, you know, where you have you know, a, a, a different America emerging in a very short space of time. So you've got this old world that's been around for a long time and then a new world that's, that's appearing. So things like superheroes against the race riots or superheroes and, uh, you know, there's a period of J. Edgar Hoover where he's got America in his thrall and, and <clears throat> you know, where things we take for granted now, you know, like a gay character having to be closeted because... You know, he would, he would have to leave a superhero team. It's so different from if you're writing the Avengers or something now, where you could easily have a gay character and be openly gay. But it seemed fascinating to have somebody who had to even pretend to his teammates that he's heterosexual. So, st- stuff that would actually seem pretty normal now, you know, d- takes on an entirely different resonance in, in 1959. And uh, and the story, it, it just wrote itself. I mean, I, honestly, I would sit down and write a comic in three days. I and I usually take about three weeks. And the wow. faster I faster I write the better it usually is going you know so um, I, honestly I, I almost wish this was 100 issues long it's, it's 12 issues and I've almost finished it and I'm really going to miss this book when it's gone uh, well that's interesting because I wondered and especially you saying that there is such a backstory yeah. 100 years of these characters that you want to explore that uh, yeah like you said it's it's the opportunity to tell these stories now yeah. in a way that you couldn't have told them in the 50s and 60s and you know I mean that was part of the appeal with the Minutemen that Moore did with Watchmen obviously yeah. and uh, also so you know Cavalier and Clay, yeah, you know that kind of thing as well. So no, it, I agree with you. It's it, it is it, it does play well in the in the superhero world. To and it, it gives the project a real grandeur as well when there is this um, there is this history to all the characters. Like the thing I love in Godfather Two, um, which people don't talk about much, but I think is fascinating, is that Michael Corleone and Vito Corleone are the exact same age in that movie. It's an examination of a father and a son at the very same age and how different the world is. You know, for, for each of them, you know, so you, you've got somebody in the very modest beginnings, and then you've got somebody who's got incredible wealth and power, you know, um, at the, the precisely the same age when they're both having young families mm-hmm. and just getting married. And, and I really love that. There's something just really 
poetic about it. You know that our, our lives are cyclical. You know, our parents, everything that we've go, we've gone through, our parents have gone through, and we, we you know, we sort of dehumanise our parents and we uh, idolise them, and that's kind of what Jupiter's legacy is about. That we don't see them as real people. And what I wanted to do with Jupiter's circle was like take the characters who were idolised really in Jupiter's legacy and show that they were just regular people. The They're real lives, the kids. Yes. So you can never imagine that your mother and father at one point were obsessed with each other. You know? <laughs> and yet that must have actually happened. Or your grandparents, you know, you can't. Imagine your, your grandfather ever worrying that his hair was cool enough and things like that, and, and yet it, it must have been the case because everybody was young once. And, and there's something kind of lovely and tragic and beautiful about it, you know, just the idea of like we all live roughly the same kind of life. And I wanted to do two superhero stories then that related like that one about the fathers and mothers, one about the sons and daughters. That's excellent. And in, in Circle, it's I've, I've read the first three issues. And um, one and two are kind of a, a little sub-story along with the big overarching story. Yeah. And three was kind of its own story. It seemed yeah. taking the small-town girl and, and turning her from sidekick to lover. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, that, and obviously that's still going to play out, I imagine. The, the Well, and we see it even at the end of three. Yeah. That the yeah. son certainly resents and knows what's going on and everything. And Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting because what I've done with this is I've taken... Superhero stories, you know, like classic tropes, you know, like fighting an alien starfish kind of thing, you know, in the first one, or right. fighting giant puppets and things like that, you know, it's like classic Silver Age imagery, um, and then blended it in with stuff that we would normally get in maybe, you know, like a Woody Allen film from 1979 or something, you know, so, I mean, issue three's got Shades of Manhattan, which is, you know, the, 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 the beautiful 19 year old girl, you know, who this slightly middle aged man is obsessed with, you know, and uh, somebody who is known for doing the right thing, being stupid and doing the wrong thing, you know. And somehow, when you fuse those two things together, to me, it's quite fascinating. Like, I was suddenly, it suddenly seemed more interesting when the guy who's making that mistake is wearing a yellow costume. You know, it just suddenly seems more interesting than a than a regular kind of soap. So it's it's kind of it's a fusion of my two favourite things. Like, I love European cinema. And I love superhero comics, American superhero comics, and this is a fusion of that. Like the, the the big superhero adventures tend to take place in the background, and we have these little human interpersonal dramas going on in the foreground. But it does build up into something massive. It does take on a much more widescreen feel as the thing goes on, because the stories do all interrelate. We're, we're examining each of these six characters in turn, but then the stories meld and they blend and they become something enormous um, as we come towards the end of that year. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. Is what I'm talking. I wonder, and we talked about this before we started recording. You uh, I, I admire the fact that you've got so many different stories. You do your arc and you and you go away. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second. What I what I am curious about, and especially with something like Jupiter's Circle, to me it would seem like that is the kind of thing that would make more sense. Were you to translate it to uh, film or TV that it would make more sense as a TV show yeah. because of the sub-stories, and you really want that large canvas. And I wonder, because it seems like now television yeah. has really become the, the, the long-form character yeah. study, yeah. and film really is the big splash for two hours yeah. and stuff. You know, two things. Are you able to still tell in your feel, you know, feeling interesting character stories in film? Does television interest you? I mean, do you, when you see what's going on with TV and the longer stories, TV, um, I, I'm a very weary convert to, you know, like I'm not a massive television watcher. You know, like I'd say since I was 19, I've watched. 20 TV shows or something, you know, in all that time. You know, Crazy. It seems nuts. Yeah. Like, I've, every show everybody talks about, I've never seen it. Right? Okay. <laughs> you know? Except, I mean, I can honestly tell you the ones I've watched, and I have loved them. I've loved The Wire, I love Mad Men, I love Sopranos, I love Lost, Breaking Bad. You know, so th- there's like a handful of genius shows that I absolutely love. Other things, people say to me, 
you know, buy the box set. You might not like season one, but it gets great by season four. I'm like, I'm not spending that amount of no, time. You no, know? I so, agree. So I, I, I think if they haven't nailed it by episode one or two, I'm gone. You know, I'm out of there, you know. So, like, um, so I, and it's funny because one of my projects they were talking about turning into a television show a couple of years back, and I spoke to the, the guys at the company, and they said, I said, I feel there's not enough material here to run for five seasons like you're talking about. And they said, ah, television isn't so much giving you the answer it's about reeling you along every week thinking you're going to get the answer and I was like that's a terrible way yeah to really that is you know, like, I, I kind of hate the idea of that yeah. but sometimes it does work because the slow burn of Mad Men is what made it cool you know, absolutely like that's one of the things that there was almost nothing happens but then in real life almost nothing happens so that's sure. kind of interesting in its own way it's where you just get into the character more than the plot but I, I, I do see some awesome television too. Like I love Daredevil. The Daredevil I wanted show. to ask. Okay. I, I, I was obsessed with it. You know, I was binging on it, and like, and I was really busy that week as well. But I still made time to watch Daredevil. <laughs> I loved it so much. Oh yeah. And, you know, so so I do see some great stuff, and it does interest me. And there is one of my books that we're almost certainly going to turn into a television show. We've just done the deal, and we'll we'll shoot the pilot and everything. Okay. Um, so I'm, so I'm, I'm 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 skeptical of television, but. I see there's enough really talented people in it that it could be good. And I do agree. <coughs> Excuse me. I think Jupiter's Circle actually would lend itself very well to television. And I sort of almost don't want to wait 10 years to do a prequel series of movies once we've done the Jupiter's Legacy movies. I cannot, you know, we're, we're going to make the Jupiter's Legacy movies relatively soon. You That's know? fantastic. Um, and hopefully that will be maybe two or three movies. Um, and then you would maybe have to wait and do the prequels afterwards. Whereas it would be quite interesting maybe to have a television series that's complementary to it. It couldn't come out before it because the legacy has to set the standard and the style, you know. Uh, and then the TV guys come in and maybe do a prequel series on television. And I think that, that could be interesting. And we've had those conversations, but there's nothing uh, nothing firm yet. You know? Okay. Um, and you too early to talk about whatever is coming to TV? Uh... Uh, yeah. They, okay. We, uh, we did the deal actually about three or four months ago, but like uh, nothing's gone public yet, you know. So it's actually not that hard to work out because... There's only a couple of things that aren't in the works as films, so you just think, you know, just just uh, have a look at the back catalogue and see. All right, what's going on with it. <laughs> all right, do the math, everybody. We'll all do the math. That's that's fine. I uh, well, and I, and that's the thing because I mean, you know, like Secret Service. Well, and actually, the difference of Secret Service as a film compared to the miniseries and yeah. stuff, which it always works much like Wanted worked, yeah. and and the the little differences <coughs> and stuff. Collaborating with Matthew Vaughn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you, that really, congratulations on the two of you finding common ground and, and making such interesting movies and very different movies as well. There's a thread there. Yeah. But but I do think that, yeah, they, they've been they've been great and fun. It's funny, it's, the, the thread is the loser becoming something awesome, isn't it? I guess he wanted that as well. But it's quite interesting. <laughs> That's, That's a theme in all my That's true, yes, yes. <laughs> but like... Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Matthew because that's one of the things that puts me off television as well is that, no disrespect to people who work in TV, but somebody like Matthew is a world-class director, you know, who can who can deliver, like, action scenes, like the, the, the final 25 minutes or something of, of Secret Service. You could never do that as a television show, you know? True. Uh, and then when you work in the budgets as well, like, if you think, if you think uh, something like uh, Jupiter's Legacy would be a $200 million movie uh, to make, so that would mean in, in, in television terms it would be a hundred million an hour, you know, which would be impossible. I mean, that's never going to happen. So you, you're never going to have directors or writers uh, or actors, you know, at the same level that you can get in cinema. You know, I, so. I, I don't know, man, because Scorsese did Boardwalk Empire and the Wachowskis and Straczynski, you know, have this 
Sense Eight. That is a new show that's on Netflix that just debuted but last okay, week. But I don't know how, how much is an uh, you know like a big television show. What's the budget for? for yeah, one I, 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 yeah, I don't know either. But I keep hearing that Netflix is truly. I mean, God, they just bought the rights to a, a Brad Pitt movie and beat up the other studios. That oh no, we'll we'll run it. I mean, that's the thing. It seems like Amazon and Netflix ha- are putting huge yeah. amounts of money. And and yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It just seems like the and you're right as far as the spectacular film yeah. that does need over the top special but effects. You, but like Daredevil is a great example. But even of, smaller ones though, you know, like I, I wouldn't name names or anything, but I know that the Hit Girl sequences and Kick Ass One are so fantastically choreographed, and the guy who does them is a guy called Brad Allen. And you couldn't afford Brad Allen on a television budget. Okay. You know? so, okay, yeah, you so something know. That okay. Lo- I mean, the, the sequence where she runs down the corridor at the end of Kick-Ass 1 is three three weeks' work. Two, two to three weeks' work. Okay. You know? And television couldn't afford to shoot a fight scene for three weeks. You know, they would shoot it True. in a day or two True. days, you know. But comparing comparing to the Daredevil stuff and everything, I mean, look at those elaborate fight scenes. That, those that look it, good, but I don't think they're as good as Brad Allen. Well, and, and, yeah. and, and certainly, yeah, more ac- more acrobatics. And it's funny, I'm only I'm only through episode nine because I'm savoring Daredevil. I'm oh, taking, really? I'm yeah. taking my sweet time. That's why I wish I'd done that because I was like, where's the next one? And somebody said, oh, you've got 14 months to wait. I was like, what? <laughs> That's why, exactly, yeah, man. Yeah, you were very you know? wise. I was the glutton. I was I, the, no, no. <laughs> and I, well, and I know you know they're making uh, Jessica Jones now. Yeah. So, yeah. and I imagine there's going to be some sort of common thread there as well. No, it's interesting because, and really, dude, I go back to when Wanted was in production, and that was like when Sin City was you know coming out and everything, or yeah. around that same time, I don't know, or close enough yeah. that. You know, it seemed like, oh, Miller's got the hot hand. And now the other Miller's got the hot <laughs> hand. And that's fantastic. I mean, Wanted was 08? 08, yeah. Okay, so in six yeah. years, good God. I mean, this this pile of movies, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy. But, yeah, it just seems like TV, they're all saying, oh, you know, that's, that's where you can tell the longer story, the yeah. bigger tapestry. But, again, I can appreciate your own tastes. And also the fact that you're still seeing a lot of great, you know, European films. Yeah. The Europeans are still making slick crime movies and great little, you know, tight little action movies and stuff. I think the American stuff is great too, though, you know. I mean, I think we've never lived in a, a time as good as the last decade. I would say, for superhero cinema and things, comic book cinema, it's fantastic. I think at the other end, there's great stuff as well, you know, like there's great comedies, there's great dramas. Television's never been better than it is right now, you know, I mean, the stuff I grew up with was Manimal and Ottoman and things like that. You know? so like, <laughs> Me too. So, I mean, I, I love the fact that we have something as good as Daredevil now, you know. But like, uh, but we've get, I don't know, I think it's a multiplication factor almost. It's like uh, there's there's never been as many talented people working in the industry as I think there is right now. It's the same in comics, same in television, same in cinema. It's amazing. Like when, I remember when I was 17 looking forward to seeing Mannequin. Like, and Mannequin looks pretty good. <laughs> 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 and that's there was maybe three films a year that was actually any good, you know. Well, come on, man. We, I'm going every weekend. I'm going oh, yeah. to cinema every weekend. We were suffer. Well, we were happy to get that Red Brown Captain America movie. Yeah. All those seventies yeah, oh. Marvel movies. No, man. I know. I mean, I I, I'm only a couple day. years older than you. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was there first day um, for every one of those movies. Like, were uh, they in theaters over over? Oh, by yeah, yeah, okay, because yeah. they were so, TV the, over here, you know. Oh, we things you got as a TV pilot, we got as cinematic releases. Sure, uh, sure. So things like. Um, this Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man that was to me that was like Star Wars it was 1977 you had Star Wars 1978 there was Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man you know? outstanding and I, and I went to see that four times in the cinema I went four times I was obsessed with it and sure. then somebody said they're making a TV show of this too and it was only years later I found out no that was just an episode of the TV show you were watching in the cinema You know, that's hilarious no and I know that even in the 60s shows like The Man from Uncle and things yeah. like that were, were released in, in Europe and everything as, yeah. as feature yeah. films uh, tell me about uh, the relationship with Fox. Uh, it's great. I mean, uh, it's, 
you always think of Fox as the evil empire and everything. You know, growing up, you know, you always kind of think of Fox as like the guys you're not supposed to like, and I've loved them. You know, like I remember walking in. Uh, I signed a four-year deal in August 2012. I remember walking into the first meeting and instantly liking everyone. You know, it was weird, like, because I thought, what are these guys going to be like? You know, I spoke to them on the phone. They seemed good. They made me the offer to, to come in and uh, work behind the scenes as a consultant. And uh, and I thought, oh, yeah, I'll see, we'll see what these guys are like. And the execs could not be smarter, more in love with the material, you know. And I think you see it in the movies. I mean, there was a change in the guard at Fox, really, in 2012. And um, the, the the wave of people who came in. Were you signed by the new regime? Or yes, the, okay, I, yeah. I, I actually was in the week of the changeover. You know, so it was kind of weird. I was like, "What's going on?" You know, and and I was in every day that week, so it was quite a kind of weird time to be in the building. But like, um, but you know, the, the guys who run the show there are great, and they've got such an incredible knowledge of the material and the love of the material. And it's not what I was expecting at all. I thought it was going to be okay. We have you know we have all these franchises. This is a little Marvel pile. This is that. But they, a lot of them grew up with this stuff, you know, and they really know it and they really like. And I think especially the guys who came in at that period, um, you know, it's from the first Wolverine movie, uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, Deadpool, Fantastic Four, Age of Apocalypse. This is the movies done by this regime at Fox. And I think the quality is incredible. I I, I think we always think of the the stuff that isn't happening at Marvel Studios as the stuff that's not the real deal and everything as fans. I think that. But I think when I look at the standards and the level of directors that have been hired, the level of writers that have been hired, I think it's at least as good and in some cases better. You know, I think Days of Future Past is the best of all the X-Men movies. You know, the, the, the plans I'm hearing about for the next Wolverine movie sounds spectacular. Deadpool looks awesome. You know, Fantastic Four looks great. Everything looks interesting. You know, there's, there's no journeyman directors in there. You know, that these, every one of these guys who's been hired as an auteur and as a fan, that excites me because what made Spider-Man work was an auteur like Sam Raimi. What made X-Men work was an auteur like Singer. Come here. And I, and I like the fact that it's not some sort of, you know, a business that's running this show as such. It's the creative talent, you know, and that's, that's what drew me in. Joe Carnahan at the time was going to be doing a Daredevil movie as well. And I remember just hearing these names and meeting these guys and thinking, you know, this, this is where it's at. This is the stuff that's exciting me most right now. So uh, when an auteur like Vaughn, mm-hmm. dif- you know, has when you guys have a difference of, of how you see the film versus yeah. what you wrote and everything. Yeah, yeah how does that go? Um, very relaxed, actually. I mean, Matthew and I, um, we've got a real shorthand. We're, we're really good friends. I mean, we met in 2007, I think. Uh, so we've known each other about... Pre-production years. of Wanted. Uh, or, or prior actually, to Wanted. No, we, we, we met... Uh, we met oh, no, because Wanted was, forgive me, the, and also the other director, too, right? Yeah, it was Timur. Timur. Yes, Timur. Yeah, no, okay. Matthew and I met um, through a mutual friend, Jonathan Ross, um, who's a, a big TV host in the UK. And... Um, Matthew, it sounds insane when I think about it, but Matthew was doing the Thor movie at the time, and Jonathan told me some of his plans for it, and I wrote Matthew a, a note, and I said, you know, I really disagree with some of your plans for the movie, and I must have seemed like a nutcase or something, you know, and Matthew phoned me up, and he just said, oh, you're very frank, aren't you? And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess, you know, and we talked for about three hours, and we just got on like a house on fire, and he said to me, look, you know, I've got a movie coming out called Stardust in a couple of weeks, why don't you come down to the premiere? And I came down and we hung out and everything, and we just, we got on really well. It's funny, our lives could not be more different. We're both about the same age, you know, we were both born within 18 months or something okay. of each other, um, <coughs> and but we, we our lives were in such different places. Like, he grew up with butlers living like Bruce Wayne and everything for kids, and, and like, uh, you know, he's, he's now got bodyguards, he's married to a supermodel and everything, you know, he's, he's 
you know, he is a Bond villain. He's essentially a Bond villain. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just grew up this ordinary kid in the west of Scotland. And but weirdly, the thing that we have in common is we love all the same things. Like, and that's a really powerful thing. That you know, like when two geeks meet, it's quite a powerful force, isn't it? Because we tend to love the same music, television shows, cinema, comic books. You know, everything. So Matthew and I just talked about how the Incredibles. I remember, I remember our first call quite clearly. We talked for about an hour about the Incredibles, of how it was the most perfect superhero movie ever made. You know, and we we were stripping it down and talking about what was awesome about it and everything. And we were just like two guys who thought along the same lines, and we thought, you know, we should do something together. And Matthew said, "Have you got anything that you own the rights to?" Because I was working at Marvel at the time. He said, "I can see they're using a lot of your stuff from the Marvel movies. You know, like uh, the, a lot of the plans that were coming from the book you've done." Um, and he said, uh, you know, have you got stuff you own yourself? And I said, I do, actually. I've got a couple of things. And I sent him down Kick-Ass and American Jesus. And he, was go- he read American Jesus first and wanted to do that. And then he read Kick-Ass and jumped over to Kick-Ass okay. instead. I really think that you, you especially and your films, we're just seeing now the audience react to not popular franchises. Yeah. Say what you will, at least there was some sort of understanding of Iron Man when it came yeah. out, but certainly wanted it was a whole new thing. Yeah. You know, I think there's a slower burn, yeah. and, and it seems like your films even, the kick-ass movies, did, I'm sure the DVD sales certainly boosted you know, the money that came in from the oh, box office. Yeah, I mean, you know. It cost $28 million to make, and we made $100 million theatrically, and another $140 million on DVD and Blu-ray. So, I mean, on go. a $28 million investment, uh, did, did great. It did, like, $240 million. But, like, um, no, it's interesting. Like, um, you know, you imagine there's a direct correlation between how famous something is as a concept and how big it performs as a movie, but it's not the case. Like, Blade... Like Blade was the first you suddenly thought, hang on a minute, these movies are making a fortune, but Blade never gets past issue 20 as a, as a comic series. That's right? true. No, you're right and, about and that. And Iron Man as well, like you say. I mean, Iron Man, people have heard the name, but they don't really know what it was prior to 2008. Right. They didn't really know what it was. There was a cartoon, roughly, you know. Oh, yeah, in the 60s. You know, sure. but in the same way there was a Submariner cartoon. Right, oh, you know, yeah, like, no, you know, absolutely. It was a big thing. And I always loved Iron Man, but, like, um, but it never really quite caught on as a comic. And I... I remember even even when the Iron Man movies were, were coming out, the, the comic sales were always pretty flat. They were always about thirty five to forty thousand sales, and they've they've never really spiked. You know, Iron Man's an, an odd thing; it never really quite found its audience. But yet, the movies now make over a billion dollars. You know, so my so last fascinating. my last episode uh, was Marvel's press conference yeah. announcing Bendis and Dave Marquez yeah. taking over Iron Man. That'll be and interesting because I think that's exactly. a real shot. That's got a shot. Yeah. Yes, and now and now that people really are informed and yeah. everything, yeah, yeah. It, it will be, and that's why each time an Iron Man movie or any of these major even the Avenger movies yeah. I do ask the Marvel guys are, are you seeing anything as far as you know uh, mm-hmm. the upwards in, in sales and everything in, yeah. in comics the cool thing is and now they've got the cartoons yeah. to kind of fall back on and so if, if a, there's a bo- movie hit uh, you know certainly making a cartoon is more important yeah. than than obviously making a comic book or whatever I mean you know it seems like that's like the reverse effect I meant to ask you regarding and you said when you said The Incredibles um I know you've got a kindergarten superhero yeah, kind of yeah, uh, yeah. idea. Is that an animated thing that you might... No, no, it's, it's a live action. It's live, live action, action, too. Okay. Yeah, we're doing that at Fox. I sold that to Fox about two years ago. And the um, What's it called? Kindergarten Heroes. Kindergarten and Heroes. the guy who's done the screenplay has handed in his final draft now, you know, so we'll see where that goes from here. But I just, I quite fancy doing something a little different. Like, sure. I think, like, I've got three children and, like, they can't really see what I do for a living, which is weird. <laughs> yeah. you know? It's, it's kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger in True Lies, you know, it's like they don't see what I do every day, you know. And, like, uh, and I love the idea of doing something that they could be a part of. 
and uh, you know it seems awful especially when you go somewhere lovely and you get a limo and things like that you know the studio puts on a, a, an amazing spread for you and the kids are sitting in a hotel room with a babysitter you know and it, and it just seems wrong so so my plan is to do some stuff that's a bit more sort of family friendly and Chrononauts is like that you know and Starlight's like that and yes you know pretty much pretty much more. it's interesting actually because I've got the rep as somebody who does quite hard stuff but but interestingly most of my stuff has been PG like see over the course of my career but when you look at it in the last 15 years the Ultimates I couldn't get away with things in the Ultimates um, that, or, or Ultimate X-Men or, or anything set in the Ultimate Universe I couldn't get away with things that you could get away with in the regular Spider-Man books like, I, could, I think there were some words I couldn't say Like I, I can't remember if I could say what the hell but I don't think I could you know? in so Ultimates yeah it's funny you think that Ultimates is, weird. is quite yes, hard yes and especially early on yeah but, but if you actually look at it we did the illusion of being adult but there's nothing adult really uh, in terms of what you're seeing or hearing you know so there's no blood at all like, you actually okay. don't see any blood in it uh, you know heightened so, sexuality uh, oh there's nothing there's zero well but no, not, well not, not nothing blatant yeah well there's, but, there's people who have relationships right. and things but, but you never saw anything like resembling nudity or, and, and the violence was very subdued actually you know there was there was the inference of violence as opposed to actual violence. So um, so as weird, I've, I've actually almost always worked under the PG thirteen rules, you know. And so a couple of things I've done like Kick Ass, Nemesis, um, Wanted, you know. So uh, they, 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 interestingly, they've been very popular, but they've been the, the sort of darker stuff. But generally, the stuff I do is quite light, which which is a surprise to people. So whenever you see something like Starlight, people say, "I've never seen you do something that light before." And I was like, "Well, you know." Almost everything I did at Marvel was was something children could drink, really. You know. Interesting. Well, and, I, and now I'm curious about two things. One, uh, let's talk very fast because Ultimates and Hitch's style, yeah. and the fact that it had kind of this big budget movie yeah. look. Were you looking for that when you got Hitch, and totally, were, did yeah. you? And that's you wanted kind of a cinematic look for Ultimates. I didn't, didn't want it to become a movie. But, no, but uh, I'm just saying in terms of visual. Yeah, I wanted a cinematic visual because the way I was seeing it in my head was something that felt cinematic. You know, like I tend to think quite cinematically. Like the the, the visuals that are in my head are quite cinematic. Like I don't see it in a cartoony style when I'm doing superheroes because. I think real. It's interesting. I actually think that real life in comics is looked best when it's drawn cartoony, because real life photographic is kind of boring. It's, it's kind of like real life, you know. So when it's something that case, has, of, case in point, like Jupiter Circle, exactly. You know, when you've got lots of talking heads and things, I think to have photographic looking talking heads is dull. But if you have people that have a quirk to their artwork, you know, it's really interesting, you know. And that's why, like underground comics are, are independent comics. Uh, traditionally, I think have been done in a slightly more quirky, cartoony style because they tend to be real life subject matter, and the blend is what makes it work. And I think what makes superheroes work is the realism, you know. So you juxtapose two opposites to make something interesting, you know. So I think like um, seeing somebody fly in a cartoony style isn't that interesting because you can't. It doesn't look awesome because everything looks a little weird, you know. Whereas if you see something photorealistic, that's that's something that couldn't happen in real life, then suddenly that blows your mind. You're like, this sure. is amazing. So whenever I was putting the Ultimates together, there was two artists that Marvel had suggested I worked with, and I was like, I'd rather not do the book. And when I think about it, I was quite stubborn for a wee guy that was just starting out at Marvel, you know. Who were the but, guys that didn't make it? Oh, are you kidding? I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You know, I'll tell you what, they're actually both great, great artists, but sure. they were just wrong for this project. If I was doing Spider-Man, one of them would have been fantastic. If I was 
an X-Men one of the movies. Fantastic. But Ultimates, I very clearly saw that it had to look like real people who happened to be wearing clothes. And my big inspiration for it was uh, John Buscema's Avengers. I remember reading that as a really young kid, when I was about five. I had this Treasury edition, the giant size Treasury edition. And I remember seeing this thing where the superheroes were sitting about wearing coats and things like that, just raincoats, and they were having a coffee and things. And I remember thinking that, even as a kid, this is amazing because they seem like real people. And I wanted something that harkened back to that. And you've no idea what a hard time I had getting this book off the ground, though, because nobody wanted to do it. Right? Like, Marvel... Uh, at the time, had no interest in the Avengers franchise. Like these, I remember when I, I, I was in the office a couple of times, I, 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 I you know, pimped the idea of doing this, and they said to me, "Nobody's really that bothered about these these characters. Like there are old characters. We should focus on Spider-Man and focus on X-Men." And I was like, yeah, but I, I love these guys. I feel they're really untapped. And they were like, mm, why don't you do an Ultimate Wolverine book? You know, because I've been doing Ultimate X. Sure, sure. And I was like, but I'm doing Wolverine already and and X Men. I said, I, honestly, I just I believe in these characters. And I said, Ultimate Avengers would be amazing. And they said, but the Avengers is such a kind of like unsexy franchise. And I was like, I can't believe I'm hearing this. You know, they said, why don't we call it something else? So we spent wow. weeks trying to come up with a title, and that's why it got called the Ultimates because nobody <laughs> wanted to do the Avengers. Ultimate Avengers. And, wow. and, and Avengers didn't. Re- it took a while before people started to feel those characters with any worth, which was nuts. It was, it was crazy because wow. I think even even then, although they weren't selling massively well, I think Cap, Thor, Hulk, and Iron Man. Had maybe not so much Iron Man, but or, or Thor, but certainly Captain Hulk had a mainstream recognition. Like you could go to somebody in the store across the street from here and show them a picture of Captain America 15 years ago, and they could name him. You know, they knew who he was. So, yes. so I always feel that's a really powerful thing. You've got something to build on then as well. So I've had this idea in my head for a little while of how you could do the Avengers, and uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd had a lot of good grace with Marvel because Ultimate X Men had launched at number one, so they were keen to get another book out of me, and I really dug my heels in. I said like, I really want to do this Avengers book, and they said okay, but here's the artist and I was like it's not the right artist <laughs> you know? so I must have seemed like such a pain in the ass to these guys you know. but I, I fought for Brian Hitch and Brian had signed up um, to work at that you remember CrossGen that company of course Florida? absolutely yes. Brian had signed up a three year contract or something with them and to Marvel's credit they were great like once they saw um, some of the plot ideas and things that were coming in they said yeah I could see this working and they actually paid a lot of money to get Brian Hitch out of his contract wow. and brought him over to do the Ultimates so, Crazy. so I just knew Brian was the right guy like if somebody else had drawn it it wouldn't have looked right like Brian made it look expensive you know, yes, it, absolutely. Everything that was happening. Oh yeah, man. Looked cool. Everything. You know, like Captain America in costume looked like a man wearing a Captain America. Yes, thing. yes. And it sounds so weird. It's so subtle, but it looks different. Most people draw costumes that look painted on. Brian looked as if they'd spent ten minutes getting ready into that costume. <laughs> <laughs> well, and obvious. And I know you've been getting this question a lot lately because I've been watching a lot of your recent interviews and stuff. How does it feel watching the Marvel un- movie universe happen? And a lot of those seeds are, are your stories. Certainly the Ultimates and the Avengers. Captain America Civil War coming yeah. up. God, that's got to feel great. It is. It's funny, you know. I mean, uh, even like Winter Soldier, you know. I mean, I have no sure. involvement with these things at all, you know. No, and so, I, really, so I, I, I go along and I, I'll be surprised, you know, like Cap jumping out without his parachute and everything. And went, I was like, that's, that's the scene I did in Ultimus, you know. So there's little things of like the helicarriers crashing and everything at the end. You know, there's little moments where you sort of think, oh. But, I mean, Avengers is the most overt one, you know. I mean, Zach, sure. Zach, Zach Penn said, you know, from the Chitauri right through to, you know, all the scenes with Cap and his old girlfriend, go back to see his old girlfriend and everything. You know, there's all these little moments uh, that, that were in that original screenplay that Zach had written. And, like, uh, and it's very flattering, it's really nice and everything, but it's kind of weird because 
it's something I did so long ago. Like, um, I mean, I wrote, it's weird to think, but I actually wrote the ultimate. So I started it thirteen years ago, yeah, 14, fourteen years ago, Jeez. and I left it, you know, like in two thousand and six, like quite a long time ago, you know. So, so it's weird something having a bit of a second life, you know, like it, like working at Marvel was an amazing experience, but in some ways it feels like university or something to me. It just feels like what I did before I do what I currently do. So, um, so yeah, it's nice. I mean, it's it's good, but I mean, now I just look at it purely as a fan, you know, like. Uh, you know, I've, I've no interest in, in, in working there. Or anything you don't talk like shop that, you know? with Joe or Brian or anything? Oh, no, the, the, the people I Yeah, but I'm saying yeah, in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, hey, this is like, you know, like certainly Guardians being the big surprise that it was and everything. Oh, no, know? I mean, that's a different thing. I mean, in terms True. of working, yeah, but like, but I mean, Joe and Brian and everybody, of course, yeah. you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're pals all know for the yeah. rest of my life and everything. You know, I, I love those guys. But uh, but weirdly, we don't talk about work, you know, like, oh, that's uh, good. which is funny, you know, like, we, we'll, we'll just we'll drop each other emails or if we see each other. If I'm in New York, the first thing I'll do is call Joe Casada, you know. Um, I, I, you know, I'm going to see Joe in a few weeks' time, but like um, San Diego, uh, probably just when I'm in New York. Oh, okay. You know, so I'll, I'll call him up. You know, so I mean, we socialise and everything. We we all hang out, but the I, I feel as if the period of Marvel was my period at Marvel, and I always think it's a mistake to go back. You know, I think for for everyone, whenever you've done something and you go away, and then you come back, it's never quite. That's same, good, you know. Or yeah, or yeah. yeah. No, and I understand. For, for everyone, times. you know, for, for the writer, for the artist, and for the reader, you know. So, no, I so, understand. You know, occasionally, occasionally it does. I think if you come back and do a short thing, like a special project, it can be interesting because you do have ideas. You know, like Frank Miller sure. came back after four years and did Born Again, yes. which is his greatest work at Marvel. I mean, everything Frank Miller does is amazing, but um, what he what he did, came back with was phenomenal. It was incredible. Oh yeah, but like. Um, but if he'd come back and maybe done a five-year run or something, he might not have had that same energy that he brought to six issues, you know. So, like, uh, so, you know, I think I would never rule out doing a special project or something. But, but I think I would never come back and do a five-year run or something like that at Marvel, you know. Yeah, and I don't. I think, to be honest, I, I wonder if those years are really kind of over, with very few exceptions. It really doesn't seem like these days. Yeah. You know, and also there's some we started talking about before we started recording I want to get back to and that is the generation before you. Yeah. The pinnacle was DC and Marvel. Yeah. You and Kirkman and Hickman and Brian Bendis and um, Grant and, and all these guys have now shifted to this let's make our own stuff. Yeah. We've made our name at DC and Marvel. Let's yeah. bring our brand and our readers to yeah. our stuff and everything. Yeah. And yeah, just this evolution of the business. And you were saying too that you're, you're impressed with how, how smart and how business-minded the creators have become. I think it's really interesting because um, I, I'll always side with a creator over a company. Always. And it's funny because companies have incredible brand loyalty. Like as a kid when I was growing up I loved Marvel and I loved DC. I never thought of it as human beings so who, who were making the stuff. But the guys who, who created that stuff were generally not rewarded. It's just that was the, the times they were in. You know, it's not that anybody's evil. That's just that's the, that's the corporate structure. Um, and it's sad, you know. Like we saw some incredibly talented people, you know, dying in not great circumstances uh, to the point where we have a comic book charity now, you know, to, to try and help people who are in dire straits. So I think we've learned the lesson of two generations of people who were kind of ripped off, you know. And um, there's a lot to thank the image guys for, and and I don't think they're given enough respect actually because they changed the game. Like Kickass wanted, and all these things would have been owned by Marvel or DC if it hadn't been for the image guys. Like I'd have had no choice because where else would I have gone with them? Yet? Yes. So like, um, so we owe them so much, we really do. And I think these guys they don't get a huge amount of respect. I feel you know certainly from the fan community and from other the, the original, you know, the original, yeah, the original those, image those guys. six image guys. Yeah. But they, they took a gigantic gamble. I mean, these guys were making $2 million a year at Marvel back in 1991, 92, and then going over to give that up and to go to potentially 
bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, like that could have been a complete disaster because they were up against Marvel and DC. And the fact that they made that work for them and made it work for all of us is incredible. It's so good. But what I love now is the savvy comic creator. I love the fact that people aren't stupid anymore. And they're sort of encouraged to be stupid, you know? Like, you, the companies do quite like it if you're stupid, you know? They love it if you give them a character for free. You know, they, they, you know they, they, it's in their interest for you to be stupid. So if, if a comic book creator gets savvy, it's nothing makes a corporation more nervous. You know? so, so what you're getting, I think, at Marvel and DC is obviously since probably the 70s, not much in the way of new characters, because people are smart enough to know don't give your, your work away for free to these guys. Um, but there's what that meant is, I think, very few new characters being created anywhere because there wasn't many outlets for them. But in the last ten years or so, people have taken advantage of that image setup. You know, people didn't quite get what it was for a long time. You had a decade of people not really using it, but certainly in the last five years, massively, the last ten years, really, to some extent, you've had an explosion of new characters, and it's good for us. It's good for pop culture, you know, because it seems crazy in a way that we we often, uh, you know, we're we're working on characters that are 75 years old and bringing back villains that we've seen come back 20 times, 40 times or something. So it does seem quite interesting to me that suddenly we, we do have a world where there's sagas and sex criminals and all this kind of thing. There's all these great new ideas out there that, that people can hopefully read for the next 75 years. I, uh, I, I was trying to think of a word beyond uh, calling it university in terms of where DC and Marvel's period is. It's yeah. almost like an apprenticeship yeah. where you yeah. really do get your skills and you really do reach that A level and yeah. everything and yeah. you get to play with the big toys. Which is very exciting actually. It's so, great fun doing that stuff. Yeah. We talked also and it was interesting, uh, we were at breakfast with, with a guy who had a uh, Central City track team uh, yeah. t-shirt on and we were talking about logos and how important it is and it seems you know from a marketing standpoint beyond the story itself how much do you think about the toys and things because certainly for the big two yeah. that's the real gravy that's yeah. the real money even yeah. you know as on par with television and film yeah but and, but and and you know comics are, are the last thing mm. there's certainly a healthy living to be made from publishing books yeah but do you do you think about that other side i never think about it when i'm writing it you know because i think sure. you go mad you end up with he-man and the masters of the universe <laughs> the, the, the toy i just talked to him ceilings book about the he-man go on yeah. that's a great book by the way I, oh that's I really just, nice I, I just got that book oh i'm gonna tell yeah. tim that yeah. you said that that's why he'll hopefully hear this as i'm well. actually a big fan of tim Seeley. i've been picking up all of his things you know but but that Good book friend. Is, is fantastic i love that that's on my coffee table at home in Scotland right now. Genuinely, I got it last week. But like, um, but I think you know, if you if you think too much about what something could become, you end up with something not very good in the first place. You know, so if you sit down and you actually think, you know, that this character I'm creating right now would be an amazing toothbrush. You know. Then. <laughs> <laughs> then, then you're not going to write the best story. <laughs> this is true. And it's funny, like Kickass, for example. I never imagined Kickass would have a life beyond a comic because it's it's such an odd concept, isn't it? You know, it's an unattractive hero with no powers who's not very good. Yeah. You know, and he's no money, he's got no gadgets or anything like that. So, so I never imagined that would have a life beyond a comic. I just wanted to write that story, you know. So then, what happened was suddenly we've got a kick-ass and hit-girl Pez dispenser and we've got hit-girl bags and we've got hoodies with kick-ass with zippers on them and everything and it's fantastic I mean I love it I love walking into a store like HMV or something in the UK and seeing a wall of my stuff as toys and things it's great but you, you can't think about that going in you know you, you, you just have to when the book works out well and there's a movie or whatever 
then you talk to some um, merchandising people, you know, and, and you get a company to maybe be license this stuff out, and it's fantastic. I mean, Marvel's. I remember hearing when I worked at Marvel that Spider-Man toys made more money when the movie was out than the movie made. I like believe it. I think the toys made something like one point one billion. The I year that it. the movies made eight hundred million, you know, and like. Uh, so I mean, financially, it's fantastic for creators as well because you get a little piece of that. Sure, Bob Kane, that classic yes. example and everything. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, in the forties or fifties, saying, "Hey, is it okay if I just have a percentage of the merchandise?" Yeah, whatever, kid. <laughs> Multi-millionaire till the end. I Amazing. mean, you know, that yeah. was yeah, that's wonderful. Um, Chrononauts. Uh, we didn't talk about it. I'm, I want to because uh, a great again. Really good for you that you're able to get these wonderful artists like Sean Gordon Murphy, and obviously, you know, he's he made his name prior to working with you yeah. as well. But uh, I love the look of the book, but also just the fun of it. And it is it. it there's another odd kind of you know duck <laughs> of a of a comic book. Yeah, yeah. I can think of cinematic. I guess you know. So yeah. it's kind of Back to the Future on steroids. It's like buddy cop movie meets Back to the Future, I suppose. Yeah. But even more, and we're. Just getting. We haven't seen consequences yet yeah. of all this meddling of, of you know do, taking selfies during JFK's assassination <laughs> or, or and the like. You know, uh, it's no, it's hilarious, and and we're about to twist and everything and get into you know some repercussions yeah. obviously after issue three. But uh, yeah, there's a fun book that again lends itself, I think, to a to a movie idea. Uh, you I know, I would think so. You don't think most things could could work as a movie if if they work as a comic, they tend to work as a movie. I think I can almost think of no comic I love. That wouldn't be a great movie, you know. Like um, Watchmen, weirdly, is one of the ones that is difficult because it's a twelve-act structure. So that Again, doesn't necessarily work as a movie. Well, know? and that's why I thought with Jupiter Circle too to learn the lesson of Watchmen because we all said when we was talk about a movie, yeah. oh, it would make a much better HBO series. Exactly. Yeah. Let Terry Gilliam do it on HBO, please. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> most, most comics are a three-act structure though. Yes. Know? So they tend to work very well. Like, True. Uh, like Batman Year One would have been a great Batman movie, you know. Great kind of great King, character. Yeah, King of Comics <laughs> a fantastic as uh, a fantastic setup for a movie and everything. So, so I don't know. I think most comics I love do tend to work as movies. I, I genuinely can't think of a single example. Dark Knight Returns. All my favourite stuff. I can't think of anything that wouldn't be a great movie. You know. That's fair. The uh, uh, Marvel Zombies and and really the whole zombie craze. Yeah. <laughs> because you started it in Fantastic Four. Yeah. They get Kirkman to write Mom, Marvel Zombies. Yeah. And also of course Kirkman's doing Walking Dead. Yeah. But it is kind of funny that you were like at, early on and saying, hey, you know, zombies are fun. I remember pitching. I actually pitched the series called Marvel Zombies to Marvel. Um, and nobody liked the idea, but you know everybody said this this is this is sucky, you know. And uh, there was one guy who liked it actually, Axel Alonso liked it. I remember around the table, uh, Axel Alonso says, "Oh, that's really cool. I like that." And, uh, and Axel's great, you know. And he comes uh, to me afterwards and he said, "I think there's there's something in that." And then I had breakfast with Joe Casada next morning, and I was a bit bummed because I thought I, I could do this uh, Marvel Zombies week, and Joe was like, nah, "I don't know, I'm not sure." He said, "How would you like to do Ultimate Fantastic Four? And I was like, "No, I, I want to do this Marvel Zombies thing." And he said, "Why don't you?" Put the Marvel Zombies in Ultimate Fantastic Four, and I was like, oh, and that sort of suckered me in, you know. So I did twelve issues of Ultimate Fantastic Four, in the first three and the last three with the Marvel Zombie characters, uh-huh. you know. And then they, they did the Marvel Zombies spin-off series from there because I think they realised this visually it's something that worked very well. Because the visual I had, I started drawing this thing of a stretchable zombie, you know, like Reed Richards as a zombie, and I thought, there's something quite creepy that you run behind the door, you lock the door, but the zombie can slope down under the door and come in and get you. And I thought, that's terrifying, you know? And that's what I, that's, and that's what I pitched to Marvel when I was sitting at the table with everyone, and everybody was like, that's the worst idea I've ever had. 
<laughs> well, and Civil War, I remember, yeah. was an afterthought because they were going to do a different event, and you and Brian are like, this is not good. Yeah, and that was one of those things. We used to do these 3D plot sessions, you know, where we'd all get together and think about the next six months or the next year. And I remember the idea was to do Planet Hulk. Planet Hulk was actually going to be a big Marvel event. And I just didn't feel it. I thought it was a great story, actually. I love Planet Hulk. I think uh, I think Greg Pak's terrific, actually. Tremendous like story. And it's, I remember the sales just going up and up on the Hulk at the time. It was perfect for it. But it felt like a Hulk story. It didn't feel like a Marvel event. event and that happens you know? a lot on recent events as well. Yeah. Go on. I, that I that are blown up too big. I, I think it's important, you know, that you have, you have a, an ensemble of characters in an, an event, you know, and that's what's interesting to see these guys pulled into the same story. So when yeah. it's all just based around the Hulk, it just it didn't feel right. And we, we all felt it. We were all like, there's something not right here. And day one, we were like, mm, not sure. Day two, and then Joe was saying, who wants to write it? You know, anybody up for this? And we're like, nobody was feeling it, you know. And then it was day three, just at the very end of the whole retreat, the, the, the you know, like Civil War just sort of worked out. And like, and I think it, it's funny, it's one of those things that... Uh, you know, sometimes you get a whole bunch of people together in a room and, and you come up with nothing for a couple of days and then there's just one final conversation and the whole thing just explodes, you know, it just it works out great. And uh, at the time, I remember thinking, this is the biggest uh, pain in the ass I've ever had in terms of, of working, but I'm so pleased that it's worked out and people, you know, it's a lovely thing to have on my shelf and it's been made into a movie now and everything and people really like it. It's one of those things people talk about and it's like it's one of those milestones like Secret Wars or Crisis or whatever. But it was so difficult at the time. You know, I remember as I was writing it thinking, this will be over soon. You know, like it's... It was fun to do. Uh, Is it from a pressure standpoint, or just the fact that there are so many other people? Just all the other people involved that are doing their sub stories. Yeah. Oh stuff. my god! Yeah, I mean, I remember Marv Wolfman talking about this as, as a kid. I used to read interviews with Marv, um, and he would talk about it would be a nightmare because guys would cross over with Crisis and Infinite Earths, and you couldn't always quite control things. But uh, Civil War became such a beast of its own, you know, that we were having pretty much every Marvel title tying in with it every month for the entire run of the book. And the book actually ran for about nine months because there was a couple of delays. Yes. So you, you had literally dozens, if not hundreds of titles that seemed to tie in with this book. And I didn't even read them. There was just so many. And a lot of people are late with their books. A lot of people are um, changing their scripts as they're going along. Certainly. Are changing. And sometimes people just wouldn't do what you told them. You know, so, so yes. I, was, I was writing the, the core book and I would say, right, okay, you go off and do this with your character and everything. And, you know... The, for this issue between issue four and five, I need this to happen if your character's coming in here. And people would just go and write their own thing. It was like, so it was, it was honestly, it was like juggling gas. It was the maddest thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I saw you uh, at the uh, Scottish Film Festival yeah. talking about this as well. And it's funny you mentioned, because the hosts were saying, oh man, you know, Sp- Spider-Man now being able to be in the Marvel movies, this is great yeah. for Civil War. And you're like, oh, you know, that was only five pages in your yeah. story. Yeah. But it was such a huge moment in the event. Yeah. Played out in Spider-Man too, exactly, yeah. And you know, yeah. So it, it is interesting that, like, yeah. What what was five pages to you really was this like major moment in Peter's life where suddenly he's you know exposed and everything, yeah, and the repercussions. Yeah. I mean, I do think I, I don't know what their plan is in terms of Spider-Man um, for Civil War, but I do think it would be weird to have Spider-Man expose his secret identity when they just get him back in the Marvel yeah. Cinematic Universe. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not. So I, think, I didn't see that happening. I, no, to I me, don't think the, so either. The Spider-Man stuff is the least important part of Civil War. To me, the the whole point of Civil War. Is 
also not the secret identities thing. Like people get really hung up on the secret identities thing, but um, it, it, it was not a fa- it was not a factor in the story really much at all because most of the, the characters had been outed at that point anyway. Like Cap's identity was known, Iron Man's identity was known. Really, there was only about three or four characters who weren't. So the big thing was: do we work for the government or don't we work for the government? Are we licensed like cops or are we rogue agents like vigilantes? And that was what Civil War was about, you know, and, and I think that's what the movie will be about too because there isn't enough superheroes for it to be that interesting with the unmasking. Yeah. Do you think, is that a, a conceit, the secret identity that is going away? Because I, and, and it works wonderfully for Jupiter's Circle yeah. when you've got a private life and a public life. Yeah. And, and I can see that still working today. Yeah. But it does seem like, in general, yeah. the big two are moving away from secret identity. I think they have for 15 years, but one thing that I'm really, really pleased about is that they have because now I'm reclaiming it. You know, so like in Jupiter Circle, I love writing the secret identities. It's like, I think they've forgotten how cool a secret identity is. Like, the secret identity is the interface between the hero and the reader because he's like us. You know, he's, he's, we can imagine being Clark Kent in a way we can't imagine being Superman. Peter Parker we identify with in a way we don't with Spider Man. So I, I do think there's something wonderful about it and I think it's great for scenes as well. Like, there's great moments, you know, where you, you have a problem happens. The super, you know, a superhero in a secret identity has to get away and change, and that's when you know you're in for fun. That's like the, the wink to the reader that you're about to see something awesome, like Clark Kent running into a broom closet and flying out of a window, or Peter Parker, you know, sort of like changing into Spider Man, or Captain Marvel, you know, Billy Batson saying the word Shazam. Like these are the moments where it's like a, a signpost to the reader that things are about to get exciting, and when you lose the secret identity, you kind of forget that. So Ju- Jupiter's legacy is all about rediscovering what makes superheroes awesome you know like we start in that place that superheroes have been in for 10 or 15 years which is the first couple of issues where it's the celebrity superhero and they want to change the world and all this are tropes that we've really done for the last decade and a half but what it's done is it's a re-examination of the baby that was thrown out with the bathwater and the concept of heroism there is actually fascinating because it's something that we don't see all the time you know like the idea of the altruistic superhero who doesn't want a you know a, a merchandise deal and all that kind of stuff you know all this uh, 21st century tropes of superheroes to actually strip it right back to the almost golden age idea of somebody with a secret identity who helps people when there's a crisis like that is so old fashioned that it's kind of almost new again so Jupiter's legacy is all about rediscovering that and, and we obviously play around with that in Jupiter's circle too that's excellent is are there things that are happening in current events I've always appreciated your following of what's happening now mm-hmm. and you've been very vocal and also done interesting little like I remember your Tony Blair George Bush mm-hmm. are we doing the right thing kind of mm-hmm. uh, thing you did for one of the newspapers yeah, I want to say yeah, you know our current events. You know, feeding your your story oh, ideas. Yeah, always, yeah, it's funny they do in subtle ways. They, they, sometimes you don't even realise you're doing it. Sure. Know? So like, uh, but I find myself I'm more. I think I'm more influenced by what's happening around me than what's happening in an issue of a comic or whatever. You know. So I, and I think that's a good way of reaching a mainstream audience as well. I sure. think if you if you tell stories about real people and real events, but wrapped up in genre that's like a classic science fiction idea isn't it you know like science the best science fiction isn't about the future it's about the present and and I think I try and bring that to my stories as well like I like to write about something that anyone can understand I think that's this is what I love about creator owned like whenever I used to um, do company on characters I used to give my books to my family you know like my brothers or whatever or cousins 
and they would say to me, I've no idea what's going on. Because <laughs> they've, no, they've got no back history of the characters. Right, right. Whereas if you hand Starlight or something to them, they get it, you know, and they read it. And now they actually read my books in a way that they didn't for That's years, excellent. which is quite nice. Guy, thank you for mentioning Starlight again, because good Christ, I love that. It was oh, great. Thanks. Oh, I'm a huge space opera fan. Yeah. And it really, I got to meet Buster Crab oh, when he was in his 70s. Yes, oh, I was 12 years old. He came to Chicago with a, like, revival, you know, kind of what you see at, like, memorabilia shows. Wow. And it was just him uh, with a couple episodes of Flash Gordon and stuff and just talking about the old days. It was fantastic. That's amazing. And he's yeah. like one of my absolute heroes. I, I respect it. Well, that, you know, I, I was thinking it would be fun to put today's social media geek world yeah. into the old days yeah. and have people go, well, who's better, Buster Crab or Crash Corrigan? <laughs> or, you know, some of those other old, yeah. like, yeah. Uh, serial kind of heroes yeah. and stuff like that. So... Yeah, I, I'm thrilled that the movie is in development and everything. And God, I can only imagine some of the great older action heroes that you can get. I, I love Liam Neeson and everything yeah. he does. I don't want him to do everything. <laughs> and I really think you've given another opportunity for a really interesting geriatric, you know, hero. <laughs> Well, you know what I mean? We're never going to get anyone to play this now. <laughs> yeah. No, but yeah, yeah I don't want yeah. George Burns so like, Yeah, I'll go back and do Wash. Like, no problem. <laughs> but I think there's a, there's a little window for an actor, somebody between the ages of about early 50s and early 60s for this, you know. And there's quite a few guys at that age group because the movie stars that we grew up with are about that age now. Right. You know, they are, so, like, Tobey Maguire and those guys were sort of eclipsed by the characters that they played. You know, the, Spider-Man Absolutely. was the movie star. Christian Bale wasn't the star of the movie. Yes. Batman, you know, but whereas the sort of, you know Liam Neeson's, the Mel Gibson's, you know the Chuck guys, Norris, Stallone, yeah, they're, they're all around sixty. Those guys, yes, you know, yes, like 50s or 60s. yes, yes. So there's quite a lot of good good people to choose from, and that's something that we're talking about now. The script's done now, you know. So the idea is to find the actor, and that's really exciting. You know, like Chrononauts and Starlight will be the two that will be done next. You know, so fantastic. So, so it is exciting hearing the names being bandied about now that we're looking out for for possibilities. God, man, I can't I can't wait seeing cracking open a pyramid and finding a a, a fighter fighter plane and stuff like that surrounded oh, by me too. I, Egyptian I can't stuff. Like. The, the, the team that's doing this I feel so confident with you know it's the guys who did Fast and the Furious 7 you know so oh, fantastic. They, they know how to make you know big commercial movies yes 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 and we've got one of our two chrononauts signed up already we know who the other one is that we want and everything so hopefully soon we'll get an announcement with those two as well you know so I don't know it's, it's happened very fast but it suddenly is starting to feel very real it's exciting I really hope Super Crooks happens at some point too and I know you were uh, working with that Spanish Natural Vigil uh, yeah man yeah. and what was this movie Timescape or uh, Time Crimes yeah I watched it I watched oh, it, it, like it oh absolutely Man, that was fantastic. He's in it, you know. He's the he's the guy with the beard. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh, that's yeah, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god. Are there any other European filmmakers we should watch for? Because all we get is mostly, like I said, well, Nat- the American Nacho's, stuff. Nacho's actually about to become a big deal, like um, in the US. He's already a big deal in Europe, but like uh, Nacho's budgets have tended to be between one and two million euros at the moment. Um, but what's great is he's about to do a movie that's like ten million dollars, you know. Um, and actually, I think it's going to be even more than that now because he's just signed up Anne Hathaway for his new movie. Oh, fantastic! And it's such a great wow. concept. It's called Colossal. This is his next picture, and I've held Super Crooks off because um, different people have asked for it, and I made a promise to Nacho that I don't want anyone directing it apart from him. And because Nacho had done these one and two million euro movies, they were worried about giving him forty or fifty million dollars because okay. they said, "Well, he needs to do a sort of effects picture or something first before he." Which I think is ridiculous, you know, but because you're either a good filmmaker or you're not a good filmmaker, and, and and he's great. And I said, "Well, I don't want to go to anyone if it's not going to be Nacho." So. Um, I don't know, we'll see if the, if the Anne Hathaway movie works out really well. Hopefully Super Crooks could be his next thing, which would be fantastic. But the, the concept for Colossal is so great. The idea is like, oh, this is public. Yeah, it is public. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Uh, like, 
there's a, a, a giant monster attacks Japan, right? Like a Godzilla style sure. monster, and starts smashing the place up. And this girl's watching it on TV, and when she raises her hand, you know, to scratch her head or something, the monster scratches its head. So they get some sort and, of and, and then when she bends over or whatever, the monster bends over, and she realizes that she's got this link to the monster. Wow. And she doesn't know why, but then she thinks she'd just broken up with her boyfriend, and, you know, she hates her boss and things like that. And she thinks, I'm going to bring this monster to New York and destroy everyone I hate. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and like- this is. Fantastic uh, voyage, or, yeah. for, or Forbidden Planet, rather. Forbidden yeah. Planet. And it's so ridiculous. Wow. I love it. So it's a romantic comedy with a monster in it. That's hilarious. Like, so it's like The Devil Wears Prada meets Godzilla. You know? That's that's <laughs> really funny. Wow, that's really, really but interesting. But Nacho's great. You know, he's, he's just great at these little odd ideas and just carrying it through. He's, he's got a great superhero idea that I hope he does one day, too. How much did you get a chance to meet and kind of talk to Josh Trank with Fantastic Four? Yeah, I spent quite a bit of time with him um, when I first started uh, over at Fox, actually. And then once, I mean, the purpose of my thing is yeah, kind of, it's not so much to sit with the directors, um, it's more sort of behind the scenes with the execs, you know, and sort of do planning sessions like who would be a good director to bring in for this thing, what character could be exploited here, you know, in some way, you know, does this character work well as a buddy movie with that character, that type of thing, you know, so we, we chat about that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I, I talk, once I read a draft of the screenplay, I'll talk to the writers and things as well. So Josh Trank and I uh, spent a few days together back in 2012, um, before they really got deep into Fantastic Four. Um, so we got to hang out, and it was really interesting, because I was a massive fan of Chronicle. Me too. That was that Me was too. my favourite superhero movie that year. Uh, and one the of the best. Avengers was out, you know, no, so but well, truly one of the best, right, and yeah. on a shoestring, too, yeah, and to achieve what he did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he was a really interesting guy, and really exciting to hear his plans for Fantastic Four. And I, just, I knew right away something interesting was going to happen. It was going to be unlike anything that you could imagine for a Fantastic Four movie, and he showed me a lot of the sketches they'd done and stuff like that, you know, so... So I think Josh is great. I mean, I love the fact that there's that eclectic mix of directors there. You've got guys like Matthew, you've got Brian, you've got James Mangold, you know, and you've got somebody like Trank, you know, and, and a, a bunch of new guys that they're bringing in now too for the next wave or something. Real quick, have you seen the final cut of four? I haven't seen the final cut. I've just seen chunks here and there. But okay. I haven't seen the assembled thing. Matthew Vaughn had seen it though. Matthew um, saw uh, like a, a, an unedited version, like a, a first run at it, and he was really impressed. He thought it looked good. Some of the, uh, we hear about, you know, directors coming in and out of films. Obviously, we've seen with the superhero films coming out of DC and Marvel and yeah. stuff that it is more producer run, it seems, yeah. than director run. Yeah, so it is that auteur of, yeah. of film versus what seems to be working, yeah. certainly in the Marvel world and yeah. everything, of, look, if this director isn't working, get him out of there, the train is running, we'll yeah. get another guy in that can do the job and do it well, yeah. but it is different, we're about to see it with Ant-Man, with Edgar Wright in the swap around, yeah. uh, Trank, you know, in and out of uh, Star Wars and things that, yeah. that are coming up. What, you know, as someone that's been on the inside, can you quantify, I mean, again, in the case of Matthew Vaughn, it seems like he, he's still an auteur and able to get his voice, and again, working with your stuff yeah. might make it easier, but you Well, Matthew me- finds it a lot easier because he finances his own movies, so like he Well, there you go. Usually a, direct, a director puts <laughs> cap in hand to the studio and says, give me a hundred million dollars and like, what Matthew does is he says, here's a DVD of my movie would you like to distribute it, you know, and it's, and it's crazy, but he, he borrowed 28 million for Kick-Ass, he borrowed 81 million for, uh, for uh, King Kingsman so Fantastic. It's, it's crazy, so I mean they could end up being the most expensive home movies ever <laughs> <laughs> but he's so good that he's managed to sell them and sell them well you know and it's, they've done great for him so um, but the other guys yeah it does that does concern me actually because I do think I, I think comics and movies are more related than people think and what happened back in the early 1990s in comics was the guys who were the auteurs of the comic book industry faded away from the big two 
and the big two started bringing in a lot of talent they could control. So they had people who would write parts of stories and bring in other people to write other yep. parts of stories and you had to buy all the comics to understand everything that was going on. It was like the marketing guys were writing the comics. It almost felt like a, yep. it was very editorially driven. And I do see that happening cinematically as well, which is interesting, you, you know, with Marvel and DC, that it does feel as if there's guys sitting behind desks engineering this stuff instead of the Sam Raimi's and all that, you know. And that's what I do like about Fox. Like, the Fox guys do step back and let the the directors the call the shots, yeah. which is the important thing, because you're making a movie, you're not making a marketing thing, you know. Sure. So, like, um, so that's something I do think that they have to watch, because you do see some cheap talent being brought through. Like, I know they don't spend the same kind of money on writers that they did five years ago. You know, like, uh, they, they slashed the budgets for writers, um, and, and that's a slightly worrying sign. But then sometimes you do find people who are, you know, sort of new to the blockbuster who turn out to be fantastic. Like, who would have guessed the Russo brothers would do an amazing Captain America movie? Um, James Gunn has turned out, I think, hands down the best Marvel movie of the lot. You no know? question. And James, James isn't a guy who was a superstar director prior to that. He's become one now. You know? Yes. But, but he wasn't. I've always been a fan. I've been into him for years. But, like, um, but Marvel... I think, you know, sometimes they'll go cheaper and find guys who are not very good, but sometimes they strike gold with people like James Gunn. So I do think it's interesting, like, TV directors tend to cost less money, um, and I do see that there's a bit of an appetite for the, for those guys coming through, so it's something they have to watch. But, you know, the, the quality's been good. I don't think they're invincible, though. You know, I think Thor 2 was a bad movie. Iron Man 2 is a bad movie. That's interesting. I like Thor 2. Iron Man 2 was definitely the yeah, weakest yeah, of the three. Yeah. And the Avengers 2 is weaker than Avengers 1. Yeah, but, but so, it, in both cases, I still thought entertaining. But go on. But then, it's true. It's bad. So I do think... But lesser movies, you can, ne- you can never be complacent. And I do remember in comic book terms in the early 1990s, Marvel were a juggernaut. You know, they were un- unassailable. And then very quickly, once they started to feel that the brand was more important than the, yeah, creators, the creators, yeah. then you had a, a massive drop in quality and a massive drop in sales. Massive. Like, I remember. Dude, I walked away. A it lot was, of us walked away. It was Armageddon. Yes. I mean, it really was Armageddon. Yes. And it hit the industry as a whole, you know. So I do think that you've got to keep the quality quotient and you've got to pay the money and get good writers and good directors generally. But so far, so good. You know, I think, like, you know, Marvel generally do a good job with the movies. The uh, Fox do a great job with the movies. Sony look like they're getting their act together and everything. With you know the, the deal with Marvel and everything. So, so I'm very optimistic in the way it's going. DC, fingers crossed. Who knows? You know. Sure. We'll see but, what happens. but as I heard you say in the Scottish Film Festival as well, one blockbuster and they'll fix they'll fix it. Even yeah. even if Batman Superman doesn't work. Yeah. For yeah. whatever reasons, yeah. hopefully. Fine. There, that'll just mean the next two, until the next two years when they come up with something else. Exactly. Because I, mean, I think. Do you agree that these guys are kind of not totally bulletproof, but yeah. they will serve like the comic book genre or, yeah. or superhero film genre yeah. is safe and not going to be one bad film and we're out. I think what will happen inevitably is there'll be uh, superhero movies will have to go away. You know, I think that's inevitable at some point. You know, because are certainly not be as dominant as they yes. are. You know, they'll, they'll yes. still exist in some they'll, form. They'll, they'll pull back a little bit. But something will happen, you know, where maybe the crown gets taken by Star Wars this Christmas. You know, that's a real sure. possibility. Sure. And then what's interesting is sci-fi for, for the next ten years or whatever. You know, so, so I think what will never go away now is the comic book movie. Because, like, Sin City, 300, Kingsman, Road to Perdition, these are all comic book movies. Absolutely. You know? and, Absolutely. And there's, nobody would say, oh, I'm not going to see something that's an adaptation of a comic book movie, but they might say, oh, I'm fed up with Iron Man. You right. Know? You know? So there'd be characters that disappear and new ones that emerge. Like Ant-Man could have six great movies ahead of him. You know? I think it's a lot of fun. You know, that could work really I'm hoping, hard. yeah. So like, so, but you might find people are a bit tired of something something else. You know, sure. It goes away for a while. I do think there'll be an inevitable decline in a superhero, and a, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. I think 
the stuff coming up is still so strong looking. Like I think Marvel's five year plan looks really interesting, and I'm going to go and see those movies, you know. And uh, I'd imagine most other people will too. Where it goes after 2020, who knows? You know. Agree. But even if we get 20 years as a run of superhero movies, that, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot better than it used to be when we'd be looking forward to Mannequin. <laughs> 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 right, that's a good place to button it. Hey, it's my tenth year. Uh, doing Word Balloon. Wow. And I want to thank you for being part of it for nine years because in 2006 is when we had our first conversation. Wow, that's great. And, and truly, uh, I'm always interested in what you're thinking and what you're making and continued success with the current projects of Chrononauts and Jupiter Circle and Legacy and the, the you know, the, the Legacy movie coming up as well. Uh, and, and yeah, man, it's, it's a really interesting time and, and I'm glad that you're a big part of it. And oh, thank you. Absolutely. Well, you tell wonderful stories, Mark, and I'm just glad that the audience keeps widening and appreciating what you're doing. Thanks so. very much. That's very kind. All right, there you go. Man, and uh, I'm uh, hopefully going to uh, catch up with Mark uh, later in the year, and uh, hopefully before 2015 is over, we'll have another new conversation with Mark in the months ahead on Word Balloon. In the meantime, happy to catch up with uh, Karina Becco and uh, Gabe Hardman. I saw them at C2E2 on Sunday, and our brains were fried. And I, I think I put that in my uh, uh, list of word balloon interviews from C2E2, I think in part two. Um, check the feed to keep me honest. Regardless, I know we were all just like, ah, So I thought, all right, well, well, let's do another one. And, you know, this way we can really talk and relax and we'll be in our comforts of our own home. We, we talked via Skype. Uh, I've got my blue small snowball microphone, so it, it's a little airy, and I apologize, but I stepped on my headset, so I had to use my blue, my blue snowball microphone instead. But you can hear me well enough. And uh, Karina and Gabe sound great. Uh, I had a brain fart early on in the uh, interview, and I'm not even going to say what I did, but you'll hear it. And sometimes when you know you don't know where you are in your interview, you kind of rely on your reflexes and some stock questions. And like a fool... I asked the dumbest stop question I could ever ask Gabe Hardman. And uh, I, I am leaving my embarrassment and frustration at myself in there because it ended up uh, giving Gabe the opportunity to make some excellent points, not only about Invisible Republic, the excellent book he and uh, Karina are currently doing, uh, but uh, some other things as well. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy the conversation, and it's okay uh, I, I think after, you know, 600-plus interviews, uh, I'm able to have a little egg on my face every now and then. So, uh, you know, uh, they, they're great, though, and, and they were very sweet and uh, are totally cool with the fact that I asked them a very stupid question. So look forward to that little Easter egg coming up for you and when you least expect it in this conversation. Gabe Hardman, Karina Becco, now on Word Balloon. Karina Becco and Gabe Hardman, welcome back to Word Balloon. Hey, John. I've got, uh, I got the first team on tonight. This is good. <laughs> I like it. How's it going? It's going okay. You know, I'm uh, I'm not watching uh, the Blackhawks uh, in the Stanley Cup because honestly, every time I watch, they lose. It's so you're you. doing them a favor. All right. I, I you know it's I know it's ridiculous, but I really do. I'm like I you know I enough of my friends are hockey fans. I'm not a big hockey fan. I got to be honest. All superstition is real. So just yeah. superstitions are real, and uh, we should all abide by them. There you go. <laughs> The Invisible Republic is three issues old on the stands, and congratulations. It's a great start, and I can't think of a time how long it's been since somebody has to have done a more political kind of comic book, and it's just escaping my mind. And if not, congratulations for, for being the first. But I, but you know what I mean? Like this kind, I mean, we talked about it a little bit at C2E2. And, uh, you know, kind of talked about it being this political thriller, 
Uh, but yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Even disguised as sci-fi, I, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of a comic in recent memory or, well, late, or you know, I mean, uh, there was um, uh, the uh, uh, Brian K. Vaughan, uh, Tony Harris yeah, actually, book, and yeah, but that was, you know, but you know, that's well, I don't know. And again, maybe because of the scale, that to me was more city politics versus. Oh yeah, I mean, and this is national or international intrigue and interplanetary, obviously in this right. case. And so, I don't think that that I don't I don't think our book you know bears much resemblance to theirs. I, I mean, I think they're yeah. doing something that's uh, it, it's a you know it is a political story, but it's uh, but it's very much a character driven story. It's very much about these uh, uh, these couple of people in the way that just a couple of uh, you know uh, seemingly unimportant people can can shape this whole world and, and change the history of it. Especially since we look back at all of that retrospectively and um, you know through the eyes of a reporter who's figuring it all out. Yeah, it's it's almost as if Rorschach's journal has uh, you know gotten into the hands of a a slightly bigger reporter, a, a high profile reporter actually. Kind of, yeah. Although he's a little bit of a schlub and he's a little bit of a phony, and uh, and I don't okay. love it. He's and he's not exactly he's not the greatest reporter, and he's kind of uh, you know he's he's somebody who had sort of uh, disgraced himself in the past, and he's trying to uh, use this as a way to make up for it and uh, and and have a bit of a comeback. You know, we're we're always telling stories about uh, uh, people who have screwed up in the past, things that their past coming back to haunt them. And this this whole book is about is a uh, is is the past coming back to haunt, you know, writ large. It's a huge theme of the book. Yes. And well, yeah, not only the reporter, but obviously and, and give me the reporter's name again. Kroger Bab. Bab. Yeah. Kroger Bab. And then you've got Maya and Arthur. Yes. Maya and Arthur are cousins, and they, uh, or are they cousins? Yes. Are they, aren't they? Yes. They're yeah. cousins. And they, and, and yeah, and, um, Arthur, you know, again, we're, we're really at the beginning of peeling the onion. All we know is that Arthur was involved in some sort of political disgrace. Well, it's not, they're on, it's, or they've dropped, go ahead. It's more than the, me. um, in the, in the past, uh, they, uh, Kroger Bab, this reporter, finds uh, a journal and, uh, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, he's in the present. He finds this journal and, uh, and it may or may not be a heretofore untold story of the, uh, of the political rise to power of the, uh, the strongman dictator on, uh, on this planet, uh, Arthur McBride, who, you know, the, his regime has fallen and, uh, the world is in chaos and, uh, Kroger, the the uh, reporter, is looking for a story and uh, something that will kind of rehabilitate him and kind of launch him back into, uh, uh, you know, uh, to, to be yeah, being a power player, you know. And okay, yeah, go on. And so, uh, and the um, uh, the journal describes a very, uh, you know, different. Uh, it, it describes yes. a, a violent incident that, uh, you know, that. Uh, initially launched Arthur McBride into uh, uh, the, um, you know, the sort of consciousness of this world. And, uh, and it, uh, but it describes it from the point of view of his female cousin uh, who seems to have been completely erased from history. So, uh, so that's, that's Maya Reveron. And she, uh, and so uh, a lot of this book is about, um, about the, you know, the way that, uh, somebody could be completely taken out of of the picture because the um, uh, because somebody decides it, and maybe there's they're uh, they're, they're much more important than it seems. Interesting. Okay, because yeah, I I wasn't quite sure if it was his ascent or 
his immediate disgrace and that, you know, he's he's left, you know, that that it was almost like a Hitler in the bunker thing. But it's not. This is his rise to power that we're seeing in Maya's in Maya's journey. Yeah, it's in the past. It says it's four years earlier. Yeah. 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 No, no. And I realized that, too. I just I wasn't sure if this was a examination of, say, hey, guess what? Hitler really didn't die in the bunker. This is what happened after his republic began the fall versus what you're telling me, obviously. No, this is his rise to power. And again, it's being told by this cousin who, as you say, is written out of history. We're going to obviously find out why. Are we going to find that out in this first arc, or is that really part of the big story? It's the big story. You know, I okay. mean, there, there are, uh, you know, we're, we're coming to, uh, um, you know, resolutions within this arc, but there, but there's still a big story to tell. Okay. Okay. And is the first arc five? It's five, yeah, right? Because I did see that um, the trade is being uh, – the trade is in previews now. Yes, it is. So, so you know, people people can grab that. But really, three, we're only three issues in, so uh, – but a lot happens. And, um, yeah, and I'm, no, I'm intrigued. I, I like the little, you know, moments that we've seen so far because – they're on the run, and they are they are outside of whatever Arthur's previous whatever the regime was before Arthur's reign of terror. They're, am I right? That's, well, that's no, kind he's of just he. The, Arthur and Maya are. This is just the story of them of of how how everything started for them. They just started as nobodies, and the uh, you know and um, circumstances put them in a position to uh, uh, to rise up somehow, and. Also, in the uh, in the present, we're seeing the story through uh, of uh, of the reporter who's looking in, you right. know, who's investigating, and uh, you know, and you know, seeing the world after his regime fell. So it's really right. a story about I, Kroger, the period of time where uh, after the regime fell, from the point of view of Kroger Bab, the reporter, and the uh, you know, and the earliest days of it. And he's also being pursued because he he has you know, my, you know, he's trying to figure out Maya's journal. And, and somebody wants time, it's just right. Someone, yeah, someone's after him. So there we go. Yes, I don't want to give too much, but yeah, I just want to know. I'd, I'd say that this is, you know, very three days of the Condor. I mean, some of the movies that we mentioned at C two E two that I know are, are among our favorites and stuff. So uh, no, I, I like that, and that's what I mean in terms of saying this is an interesting chase book. That given the political tone of it, I've seen other chase books, but not with these circumstances. That's cool. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it's just it's not. It's not exactly a, uh, a chase book so much as, you know, there it's um, I mean, there's there's big action stuff. But there's also small character things. And it's a, absolutely you know, it's it's you know, it's telling the story from a sort of bigger perspective. So it's uh, it, it's a little complex. I agree. No. And I and really even moments like, well, I don't want to spoil. I always say, you know, they have a, they have an encounter with authority that kind of explains where you know where things are in terms of uh, whatever whatever current government is you know running things now. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So like we're really we are absolutely, and I've heard you say this in other interviews as well. This is really a very small point of view on a very big. Yes, I mean we're thrown into know, it, and you're uh, you're only learning things with the characters, and so uh, so when yes. uh, you know you're you're getting a wider and wider view of it as we go on. And there'll be, you know, more context in the fourth issue. And by the fifth issue, you'll understand the, the kind of world of it, but it's, you know, but the intent is to uh, like in a lot of sci-fi, the intent is to throw you into a world and you, uh, you know, and you, you see it through the immediate concerns of your main characters, not, uh, not taking a, a giant, um, 
overview of things. Uh, you know, it's not about stepping back and um, and uh, having some third person view of it. It's about discovering the world with your main characters. Did you guys have to really think about how you want to do these five issue beats and have you know a conclusion that goes somewhere? But obviously, it's you know just another piece of, of the bigger puzzle and stuff. Karina, did, did you guys talk about that? A lot. I mean, it's it, that's almost the most difficult part. Yeah. You have to weave in enough. You have to have a satisfying conclusion when it's in a trade, but you also it's an ongoing story. So there's always new mysteries starting and how to make sure that's a tease and not just a frustration if someone's reading it that way is. Uh, a challenge and, but it's not unlike what we did with um, planet of the apes in a way when we had the ongoing there. So Mm -hmm. no, that's true too. That's a good point, which I loved. Of course, (laughs) young Dr. Zayas. I know it's about the general, but for me, it was always young Dr. Zayas. (laughs) I just had this very, you know, kind of Lou Ayers, Ben Casey kind of, or whatever, you know, all the various young doctors, Richard Chamberlain. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is there, are there real, was there a real political intrigue, historical fall that, you know, you looked at as any sort of analogy for this and, you know, in terms of, you know, diagramming, you know, how things fell and then how the story kind of maps out. Karina, to talk about this. Um, Well, actually, we we both uh, tend to read a lot of history. I've read a lot of stuff specifically recently about, um, you know, stuff from the last century and also stuff a lot further back in time. I mean, a lot of things share the sort of, it's a lot about who controls the narrative often is how we do sure. things. So that's a lot of what this book is about too, about the struggle over controlling the narrative and controlling the story. And when that happens, that's actually power because the, the power is in the story of what happened. Some sure. Is more, more even than um, in what's actually happened. Well, and, you know, obviously uh, the, the media is playing a big part of this, not only the reporter, but uh, clearly, you know, as you say, history is written by the victors. So I'm sure the media will be playing out whatever the company line is of how history has fallen and, you know, conflicting with Maya's journal. Exactly. So very cool. No, interesting. I like it. Um, talk about your artist. How'd you find uh, uh, your, you know, oh, that's you, Gabe. Yeah, you, I, I live in the same house, actually. Uh, it, it was yes, a I realize short trip. That. Uh, I actually co-wrote the book as well, John. Yeah, Um, yeah, I know that. I know that. I don't know. No, honestly, and forgive me, guys. I don't know. I'm, I'm, (laughs) I am tired. I apologize. (laughs) So I'm, 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 and I'm cutting that out. So anyway, (laughs) I, I. But seriously, you can say "fuck you," Jack. Yeah, that, and that's and that's totally fine. I no, it's okay. I mean, you know what? Don't cut it out. It's the you know, no, it's, no, it's I, a no, no. it's a consistent issue with uh, uh, with the stuff where you know there there isn't a, a lot of concern about the about the art and uh, you know in comics in general. I'm not railing against you. It's but it's a general thing uh, going thing where where artists don't really get like the credit that they deserve for storytellers. I mean, great. I'm, this is an amazingly self-serving rant. <laughs> you have to leave this stuff in. No, no, I'm going to leave uh, this stuff the, in. So no, and, go on. Uh, but like, <laughs> the, um, no, Gabe, I'm so sorry. No, it no. Is it's it good. Is it's you. good. Like, so, I mean, the fact that, uh, but this, I think this directly plays into what we're trying to do on this book, because in essence, you know, the fact that 
you know, we co-write the book and, and I draw the book and, it, you know, most of it all happens in, in, uh, in our house, apart from the brilliant colors of Jordan Boyd, which are a huge, uh, enormous part of this book. The, um, the fact that we're able to tell the story this way means that, uh, that I can, we can put a lot of the storytelling on the art. You know, we, there's no disconnect there. It's not that this is a, a script that's being set off to, um, to somebody else who, you know, to an editor and then to an artist and sure. there's not a lot of connection and, you know, and, and I've, I've certainly been in a position where I can see how those disconnections can get made. And, but, um, you know, I'm able to just because we know that I can do it, you know, I, we're able to put in stuff where we're telling, uh, we're telling the story with, the expressions on people's faces or we we can cut lines of dialogue because we don't need them because, uh, you know, because something is conveyed in the art and the art, the, the art in comics is, a this is the storytelling. It's not that it. the, um, you know, in, and it's much less about the, the superficial aspects of the style of it. It's, uh, it's more about the mechanics of how the art can tell the story. Uh, I mean, there, you know, looking at the style of art is kind of, comparable to looking at, you know, talking about someone's style of dialogue writing, you know, that's, that's not the determining factor in, you know, uh, you know, in telling the story in a book, it's the mechanics of the writing. It's the mechanic and, and the, the storytelling mechanics of the writing are important and, and the storytelling mechanics of the art are just as important, but we're able to really integrate those things with, uh, Invisible Republic. So to get that right look on the face and stuff like that, what do you, what, what do you reach for? I mean, other than your own, I mean, you know, I know it's obviously a sense of getting that right thing, but are you looking at photos? Are you looking, I mean, are, do you have an expression kind of, you know, group or whatever that you can kind of like re- rely on? Or, yeah. you know, obviously is it coming organically from the dialogue that you guys are creating? Well, I, do, I think it's that, it's not that I have like a, a set of photos of different expressions or anything like that. I mean, it's, it, I ha, I do, I definitely use photo reference because I want the world of it to be very credible and I like to source things someplace, but that's just something that I, it's something I'm looking at. It's not like I'm not tracing them or something. And mm-hmm. I do have, you know, particular people that I base the characters on that I'll look back at, but it's not, I'm not basing anything on any one specific photograph or anything. And I, mm-hmm. a lot of the, the stuff with the expressions, it, I mean, for me, I like, um, you know, I like to go small more than big. So if mm-hmm. uh, I, I want to express an idea in the, sim- the, in the subtlest way I can get away with and still communicate the, the idea um, rather than uh, rather than going really big, obviously there are loads of great cartoonists who you know who can go big with emotions and, and all that stuff and, and and are amazing at it. But I I've always in in across the board the things I like the most the things that I you know uh, that I want to do I like to uh, to be able to communicate that with as little as possible and so that the reader it has to meet me halfway. They have to be able to, to engage with the book and, um, you know, and, uh, not have their hand held through it. You know, they have to, they, they have to not just skip over that drawing, you know, like you have to look at the the art as much as anything, because that's where the story is being told equally with everything else. No, the, you're choreographing some really cool action shots. And I mean, really like when, uh, and I keep forgetting his name. I apologize, the reporter. Uh, Kroger Bat. 
Bag, yeah, when Bag is being pursued and I keep wanting to say Bag, B-A-G-G, because of course the Bag has yes, my, uh, you know, stuff and everything. So, but no, like, like that stuff really did play well and, and really felt, uh, you know, cinematic in the, in the proper way that a comic should, you know, yeah, although, tell, you know tell what, a story. That, that's the easy stuff. <laughs> You know, okay. The hard stuff is the stuff between the people in, you know, and getting across conversations, credible, you know, uh, emotional moments that also tell the story that don't uh, and that that don't step on it on the story, but also are, um, you know, where where the shots and the expressions and stuff mean something uh, within the context of that scene. Like the dialogue scenes are are not. Uh, you know, just like shots of talking heads. The thing no. where you put the camera, what you know, and every decision you make is telling that story. That's the toughest stuff, you know. Well, tell me about your conversations with Jordan then for coloring. You're using different palettes to show uh, the past and the present. Yeah. It's a subtle change. It is, yeah. But it, um, you know, but I think that it's uh, it's it's pretty effective. We mm-hmm. uh, we talked about and you know. Uh, and also, you know, for further insight into Jordan's coloring process, there's, uh, you know, we run uh, process pieces in the back matter of these uh, these issues. So in issue three, he wrote a whole uh, mm-hmm. process piece about his, uh, you know, the way he'll color the stuff in the present and he'll do a further one about the past. But um, we talked a lot about um, about photographers, about filmmaking about you know particular films but about you know processes in filmmaking jordan is a smart guy and he you know uh he's actually knowledgeable about the filmmaking aspects yeah and you know which is which is helpful just because it's a way to communicate um like i was filmmaking the filmmaking aspects of uh, well, you know, the, the way that you could, is something is comparable to cinematography, the look of a particular thing. You know, we talked about, you know, the bleach bypass, uh, uh, you know, look of photography from, you know, Saving Private Ryan or that you'd know from something like that. You know, uh-huh. just particular things in uh, that, that are just just a way of communicating. And mm-hmm. um, uh, the like I was, uh, you know, I was over, this is. This is some name dropping bullshit right here, but I was over at Red Hour, uh, Ben Stiller's company, and I was talking to uh, Stuart Kornfeld, who's a producer for a long time. He he produced The Elephant Man with Mel Brooks, and uh, wow. you know, he uh, and he's worked with Ben Stiller for a long time. And I was showing him Invisible Republic, and he, uh, um, you know, and he was super impressed by Jordan's colors because of the, you know, because I don't, you know, I don't think that he had thought about comics in the terms of. You know, sure. subtle lighting and stuff like that, you know? So, um, like, I think that, that it's, you know, we're, you know, the, the way that Jordan and I have communicated about it are finding a couple of key things that, uh, key reference points that we can agree on and, uh, going from there. That said, I don't give him that many notes. We've, you know, we've worked, uh, you know, we did the last arc of Star Wars together. We did uh, the Hulk, two-issue Hulk story and, uh-huh. uh, and Marvel and then uh, a Wonder Woman story at DC. And over the course of somebody else paying for it, we've uh, developed our, you know, style together. And, you know, and we, you know, once we kind of agreed on what it was, it's, it, it goes really well. We're really in sync on this. So that's great. Well, so, so literally, are you just sending him, um, 
the page. I mean, there's obviously notes on the pages. Oh, I don't give him any notes. No, we kind of we Nothing. figured it out, and you know, I mean, the most important thing you could do is. Uh, uh, I mean, the best thing in the world is finding people to work with who you trust and letting them do their leave job. Them alone. Yeah. Leave them alone. Yeah. Well, that, no, that and said, I, there's only two other people besides Korean and I on the book. <laughs> you know, so it's not like there's a lot of people to do that with. But uh, but yeah, no, we uh, you know, with him and with Dylan Todd, who's, uh, you know, the designer on the book and that, you know, he puts the book together and and, you know, designs the layout of the back matter and, uh, you know, stuff like that. You know, we for that, we just had a couple, you know, I I gave him a couple reference points and he came up with a look and we decided on it. And, you know, uh, it's it's worked out. If something goes wrong, I am more than happy to, uh, um, you know, uh, to give notes on things. You know, I mean, I'm I'm certainly not scared of giving people notes, but I but it's uh, but it's also the most important thing in the world is just to find the people who you respect and do a great job and work with them. Understood. No, and I know that that is something that all of comic creators are looking for is that ability to really do their thing and get let the, you know, bean keepers that are bean counters and, and all kind of stay out of the way and let them let them do their thing. Is there any sort of editorial pass that you handed off to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, beyond, beyond Eric or anything, or no? I mean, nobody at Image. We have a proof. Okay. We have a, a you know someone well, proofreader. No, who's yeah. a freelance editor who uh, works with us on it, uh, Brenda Scott Royce. Okay. Uh, okay, that's cool. But uh, but otherwise, it's you know it's a it's pretty uh, it's it's uh, we're a low budget operation. It's a small uh, it's a small little book. No, but I'm glad you I'm glad you included the name dropping there because I think it illustrates where comics are now. And the best thing that I always uh, experience is taking someone in who doesn't read comics to a, a current store, and I point them to stuff like you know I would point them to your book if if the uh, you know oper- you know situation presented itself because I used to point people to like. RM Guerra and then Jason Aaron was scalped and they're like, this is a comic book. And it's like, yeah, this is what comic books are. Right. And, stuff. Right. and your stuff is, you know, and your stuff has always had that kind of adult illustrative kind of thing that I think surprises people. And, you know, it's, it's served your superhero stories and franchise as well, but it's great to see that um, for this story and everything you, I, again, I heard you on with, um, the eleven o'clock guys, mm-hmm. and you and you, you felt like your style here is kind of similar to what you guys did in Apes. I kind of see it, but again, maybe because they are unknown characters versus you know the the classic look of the Fox, the original Fox Apes films. You know, I mean that just has that that own aesthetic that you know. I, it, it, yeah, it, yeah it, no, I mean I'm not I'm not really talking about the design of the stuff when I talk about that. I mean I'm talking about sure. just the. The style approach of and the you know and yeah. the storytelling and stuff. I think I don't have a way of understanding what other people would see in art. <laughs> I mean, like I don't think I know what that even is. You know, I mean, I, I I'd see it as you know, like I I think of the things in terms of how the story is told and what you know what I'm doing when I approach it, and I can't get outside of that enough to even really understand sure. how to you know you know, how, how to see it, how other people are going to see it. But no, there are no eight people in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's disappointing, but okay, I guess. Well, not yet. I mean, you know. We'll, <laughs> well this is a humanoid people that have been, you know, kind of Actually, seated. Technically, there are eight people. We're all ape people. 
job. Well, that's what it comes down to. I bit my tongue. (laughs) Well, the zoologist, I wanted to talk to you anyway about this, Karina, because your essays are a bit metaphoric in terms of they they are talking about animals and insects, but actually, you know, colonies, and and certainly you can think of the colony being represented uh, out there on Avalon and everything, or the former Avalon. Is it currently Avalon or formerly Avalon? It's, it's, well, depending on how you... (laughs) County. Yeah, yeah. It was. It had a different name uh, in the in the past part during the. Ah, in Arthur's reign, it was different. Okay, but, yeah. Um, the Czechoslovakia. Yeah. Go on. Like the, it is like that, but that's the whole thing. But the um, yeah, but no, the, that's the, awesome. The bees. There, there's an article on bees, right? The yes. bees yeah. will become a lot clearer in the next in issue four, yeah. right? It's just oh, it's okay. a key thing in it. And but it also works on the level of it's you know it's metaphorical. We just don't want we we tend to put things. I'll let Karina answer this about the essays, but we yeah. tend to put things in a back matter that are not necessarily literally explaining what was in the in that issue of the book. In, it's yeah, in, it's kind of like um, uh, I always like it in books when there's like, well, if you want to explore more, here's where we got some of you know here's the actual scoop on some of this stuff and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a lot of these, the things that the essays are about will play in, in the story directly, but, uh, we're trying to choose subjects that will work kind of metaphorically as well, but not, you know, if you want to skip them, it doesn't matter. It's not like you need them to understand the story. It's not like, oh, oh you no, have to read about say, bees to understand well, this. Thing. Well, that's what I was going to say. I'm like, oh, bees. Okay. Colony, colonists. All right. Fine. Never mind. All right. <laughs> All right, look, thanks, Bazooka Joe. I got the joke. I'm going I'm to move on now. You know, no, but honestly, I, I, that's interesting. Well, you know, honestly, like just like uh, Lazarus, uh, Rucka, and um, and now I'm blanking. Uh, Michael Lark. Michael Lark. Thank you, son. Uh, exactly. Uh, no, that book, you know, they have their scientific uh, essays in the back and stuff. Brubaker has his book and movie things in, in the various noir books that he does. I think that's great. I think I think it's you know it does make for a more richer uh, reading experience and also the great thing is you guys are all doing it frankly cheaper than you know the big two are doing with their four and five dollar books yeah so you know that's that's pretty cool yeah well it's it's just our time you, yeah. know? <laughs> you know hey well we appreciate it I, you know I mean honestly thank you and uh, thank you thank you for making it a more more richer experience. But uh, as far as the essays go, though, all of the essays are are they all they all do directly relate to something from the book. That thing, but that's not saying, that's yet. Cool. But it's not like we're gonna have you know um, uh, you know uh, an, an essay about uh, um, uh, you know Annie about? get your gun or something. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. You know, some fifties okay. musical and just uh, because there are guns in this or something. It's I mean they all do no, directly relate in some way or another. That's excellent. Well, that makes it very more more Watchmen esque. I mean, that's kind of what Under the Hood was. You know, really. You know, when when more and it, it's funny. I I used to think that it was really more of uh, Fraction and, and uh, Warren Ellis that kind of came up with the idea of back matter. And it's and someone's like, oh no, like Watchmen, and I'm like. Yeah, that, that's true. Really, that's. I mean, and granted, it was fiction in the case of Moore, but you know, this is this is kind of neat. Yeah, I like basic I like that. idea. You know, well, and yeah. you, you can't trust the facts in our our essays and our back matter either. It you might all be fiction. The facts in my essays, there are, absolutely, there are lies all over the place. <laughs> no, 
not in the essay. Okay, not in Karina's essays. Anything <laughs> I write will have a couple of lies. I'm not saying I never make a mistake, but I do. I I try to fact check. All right. Well, you're a you're a for, you know former practicing zoologist. Is that a fair? What would you what would you uh, what would you describe? I mean, we've talked about it before on the podcast, and I'm sure every podcast you do, you know, you mentioned about your former your job at the Playboy Mansion. I'm always surprised how many people don't know about that. Actually. All right. Well, yeah. You know, for people, if you hadn't heard previous interviews with uh, Karina, yes, uh, it, it, describe the job specifically. Karina. Uh, well, I used to when I was at um, the mansion. I worked as a zookeeper, mostly for parrots and uh, monkeys, and. <laughs> Previous to that, it was I worked in behavioral research at the LA Zoo. There you go. So, and you have a zoology cool. degree. And so you have a zoology, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> very cool. Do you like? Will you one day, or did you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement after yeah. your time? At, uh, Actually, I just, oh, just today I had so? drinks with a good friend that I worked with at the mansion, and we were talking about um, how unfair it is that uh, Holly. Um, one of the girlfriends that lived there when we worked there has a book coming out because apparently somehow she got out of her non-disclosure agreement. Wow. We don't have that kind of power. so. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I understand. Well, you know, do the math, and I'm sure we can all figure out what happened yeah. probably. <laughs> That's, hey, well, oh, well, there you go. Well, something for your grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. All right, they're all dead. Now Grandma can start talking. Yeah, so. right, exactly. <laughs> There was one time Jamie Farr was at the mansion riding an ostrich. Ew. She didn't work there in 1973, John. <laughs> hey, he's still alive. What are you talking about? That, am I, am, no, Karina, you got to confirm that. Like Martin Karina, Landau, is Robert Jamie Cole. Farr still alive? No, but, but when, I, when I finish my example, the plausibility, given that Robert Culp was still like hanging out until he died. and uh, You saw Robert yeah. Culp there, right? Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, Martin Landau. Martin Landau, big uh, playboy at James Conn. I wish I'd seen Martin Landau, if only. Yeah, I don't think he's My, he was still coming. No, because um, I, I think I told you in the um, – I guess it was – I can't remember if it was like 99 or 2000. My host, uh, the, the host I worked for at uh, the sports station, uh, broadcast one afternoon at the mansion and interviewed Landau and Culp. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, apparently you know. Culp was very nice to all the security guards. That's what I heard. That's hilarious. And, of course, uh, uh, aspiring cartoonist. Was he? I don't know if you knew that. Huge, huge Milton, yeah. huge Milton Kniff fan. Mm. And um, when they did that uh, Greatest American Hero comic, uh, they had a San Diego panel. And he was like, I love Milton Kniff. I love, I forget, some of the other uh, comic strip right. artists that he just, like, was rattling off. And they were not, like, you know. Everybody in the audience was like, who? <laughs> Aww. Yeah, but you know, but like the old people like me, you know, we're yeah. all like, hey, that's awesome. All right, he does, he knows his stuff, and I know he based one of the Ice Five villains on the Dragon Lady. <laughs> Everybody loves the Dragon Lady. I just happened to see uh, Orson Welles and Bogdanovich, one, or I heard uh, one of their conversations, and he was talking about how he got Kniff to paint him a Dragon Lady for yeah. his house. Oh, how funny! I imagine there are some anti-defamation-oriented people who don't love the Dragon Lady. Uh, that's that's just, I can, just guess. I can appreciate. No, I can appreciate that. I understand. <laughs> oh yeah. No, no. We were uh, we were talking offline uh, last week, Gabe, about uh, your fine uh, sketch of um, Orson Welles in the uh, Third Man era yeah. in the Batman yeah. uniform. Yeah, it was a commission. Stuff. It was it was an idea that uh, that the fan had, and it was a, it was a series of commissions I did for a charity thing, but, uh, uh, yeah, so it was, it, it, which is fun. 
You know, it was, uh, uh, yeah. it's, I, I feel like it came off well. I enjoyed it. Uh, and it was fun to try to do the, the Orson Welles likeness, uh, you know, not, not tracing the photo, but just, you know, kind of eyeball it. Absolutely. Well, and also to give him, he wasn't quite out of shape. He was just very ordinary, like George Reeves Superman kind of. You know, I'm not trying to impress anybody, but I'm not embarrassed by. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not going to draw. He's stuck in the leotard. I'm not going to draw like freakishly muscled Orson Welles. That would be more disturbing <laughs> no, than anything. Yeah, no, that would be no. I've I've been juicing. I don't know if any of you know. That. Yeah. I at least have to stay within the credible world of the third man. You know, if he happened to put on that goofy outfit in the in the Carol Reed movie, then that would be uh, that's would be a little bit what it looked like. I may have actually made him a little bit thinner than uh, than he was at that point. All right, that's fine. Joe Cotton and I believe in Charles Atlas's dynamic tension theory. (laughs) (laughs) I could see that. Yeah. That would be awesome. No, I, I thought, well, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. And also, by the way, if you, people followed the link to your Tumblr, um, they would have seen some of the other commissions you did for the charity as well. You did a fine creature yeah. from the Black Lagoon, and uh, those are the two that stuck yeah. out in my Killer mind. Killer Bob but, from Twin Peaks and uh, awesome. Quinn and Poison Ivy and uh, uh, probably another one. <laughs> relief, <laughs> relief that are – you, are you both Twin Peaks people? I, I again, heard on – Okay, I heard on I heard on eleven o'clock. Uh, Gabe even like buying the fan magazine and that back in the day. I've been an obsessed Twin Peaks fan for a long time. Karina is also cool. a big Twin Peaks fan. Probably. Oh, that's not as not as desperately so as me. But, <laughs> but she also had to listen to my stuff about you know uh, about Twin Peaks for a really long time. Uh, this won't mean anything to you, John, but like uh, you know, she's dealt with me. Uh, uh, long enough ago that that uh, that uh, me pausing uh, the VHS tape of uh, Fire Walk with me to see if the monkey actually says Judy. It's there's a lot of uh, deep dark <laughs> out uh, that damn uh, involved here. I understand. No, I get it. I, I I never got that deep, but I mean, I like the monkey does when say lost. Judy. That's awesome. Wow, well, that's fantastic. Yeah, see, now I, I haven't been able to bring myself to watch Firewalk with me because I heard so many bad things. Well, you see, that's get, that's the difference between you and me. I can't stand it, and I've watched it forty times. I understand. Well, dude, I, you know, I can appreciate that. So and while and I was opening day at the theater. Yep. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Were you guys uh, so obviously you're relieved that uh, Lynch is back? Yeah, yeah I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, I was very depressed when it seemed like it wasn't wasn't going to happen, and and I'm uh, and no matter how it works out, I'm I'm excited about it. Do you watch Louis? Uh, we watched that. I, yeah, I mean, certainly we watched that. Uh, you know, the Lynch, the, the episodes with David Lynch. Yeah, were <laughs> they were amazing. They were, and I'll just uh, and I, I'm sure I've talked about it on the podcast, but in case I haven't, a great three parter at the end of season three of Louis. And this season was season five, so it was two years ago yeah. or two seasons ago. Yeah. It's on Netflix if you haven't seen it. I honestly think you could take those three episodes and have made an independent movie. Yeah, no, they're yeah. Uh, I, was I mean, just thinking clearly, about that because I was re- I've been listening to that freaking Johnny Carson podcast and uh, listening to the one ah. with Peter LaSalle and uh, you know and and you know and hearing about all those you know people and and stuff and uh, it reminded me of the this we've now gone too deep. But, uh, it, oh no, we'll get back to, we'll get back to comics. Don't but, worry. Uh, no, just too deep into talking about, you know, 
former executive producers of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Uh, this is true. But yeah, um, actually, you're right. This, that, yeah, because I am like, oh yeah, of course, Peter LaSalle. But um, <laughs> sure. you know, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, in just in relation to that uh, Louis David Lynch thing, which was so brilliant. Well, well what I was going to say, and what I thought was a very Twin Peaksian moment in that episode. David Lynch plays this producer that's helping Louie kind of get into talk show host shape. And you're in his office, and he opens his desk drawer. And there are the most interesting things in his drawer. Did yeah. you notice all that? Yeah, yeah. No, it's that's great, fantastic. Great episodes, yeah. You know, I and, and now this is going to be a weaker example, and I'm jamming myself on this game because I'm already in the hole. Uh, but I figure uh, it reminded me of what was never paid off on the TV show Heroes, Okay. When uh, when they opened a vault and there were all these like weird little things on the wall and uh, I remember there being like either magicians cards or magician rings like in a you know just just, just these trophies yeah. that must have represented other things or whatever. Right. Yeah. So I don't think they had a big plan though. I mean, and also I, but no, they're coming I, back. I'm sure maybe they'll maybe they'll pay it. <laughs> they'll off. fix it off. Yeah. yeah they'll maybe it. they'll fix it. Off. They'll go back to that vault. Yeah. I certainly hope. Anyway, all right. <laughs> Karina, you've got uh, you're doing, you're doing a crossover with uh, Ben Perella and is it was it Aliens or Aliens. Uh, Predator? Aliens, uh-huh. my goodness! All right, so uh, Dynamite and uh, Dark Horse, what's yep. going on? Yeah, it's uh, so who, yeah. Tell me, if, so go on. And uh, it, the art there is Javier Garcia Miranda, but Gabriel Stone covers. Cool. That's cool. Were you guys, were you Vampirella readers? I actually went back and read so much Vampirella <laughs> since this. How does the, how does the 70s stuff hold up? I, I think it's kind of fun. I don't know. I really enjoy it. It's just, it's crazy. Like it, none of it fits together. So it's not like, you know, you, I don't think that you can really go in and be like, okay, I'm going to really go into the continuity here because it okay. jumps all over the place. But. Okay. Great. My God, wonderful uh, artists over the years, especially in the early years and stuff. Oh, yeah. We were just looking at one of the big art books um, yesterday at Golden Apple. Is that where we were? Yeah. Yeah. Was that yesterday? That's cool. Yeah, yeah. All the days are running together lately. (laughs) I understand. We work a lot. A lot. What are you talking about? I just asked you how you found Gabe. So, you know, (laughs) clearly I'm I'm on uh, all cylinders. (laughs) Good God. Well, that's no, that's cool. And it, does it start in August? When does it when does it start? I think it's September. Okay. I um, you know, I should probably know the answer to this, and I don't. No worries. Five issues, six issues. It's six. Okay. And um, so it's basically it's a standalone miniseries. It's not like you have to know all of the um back. Current kind of. <laughs> yeah, you know, you don't you don't. You don't have to have read all of the, both of these franchises to understand. It's going to be very much self-contained. It's set on Mars. It's, um, you know, a lot of blood and a vampire and some aliens. Okay. And uh, human colony being affected? or uh... Yes. Okay. Um, humans that uh, perhaps don't trust a vampire and uh, don't quite understand how bad aliens can be. And the xenomorphs that Javier is drawing are just amazing. He has such a good feel for the for that and for drawing vampirellas, which I think is probably a rare combination to be able to do both. So the pages I'm getting back are just amazing. 
they're starting to kind of really flesh out the alien, uh, you know, mythos in, in the movies and stuff. Do you reach into that kind of, uh, backstory at all? You know, I'm a huge fan of the first, really the first movie is one of the mm-hmm. first movies. And I'm just going straight with just, if you don't really know anything about them and they're kind of unknowable and they have their own wants and needs and they don't care what else you're doing, I find that's scarier. So, I'm not really going into all of that kind of stuff. So I understand. I understand. So look at, looking back on the on the Star Wars collaboration, did did you guys enjoy it? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, it was great. I, Good experience I mean, and everything. We were able to, you know, tell stories we wanted to tell, tell the story we wanted to tell. We mostly had enough uh, you know, uh lead time to wrap up the story, uh although not really enough space. But, you know, but we basically did. And, you know, no, it was it was loads of fun. We we really enjoyed it. That's cool. That's excellent. Well, I know, I mean, I've told you before how much I enjoyed the Planet of the Apes collaboration. You did Hulk recently, mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a short uh, story, Hulk and Doctor Strange. Yep, yep. We've, I mean, honestly, we, you know, yeah, of the things that we've done, you know, the um, all of these freelance things that we've done, especially the ones where it's, you know, stuff that I've drawn and we've written together. Um, you know, and there's other stuff Karina has written that I've had nothing to do with, so I'm not going to speak for her on that stuff. But, you know, of our collaborations, all the freelance stuff has been stuff that we've been really into and uh, uh, and uh, kind of without exception. I mean, I, I would have thought that the least likely thing would be the Wonder Woman story uh, that we did for Sensation Comics. Uh, it was a story where she went to Apocalypse and uh and it was a little bit of an espionage story okay and uh you know it uh it it turned out to be great i would i would totally do uh a you know a, a bigger longer wonder woman story i and i'm not even sure why like it wasn't it, it wasn't something that they didn't approach us with it it just came up and and uh and or we read about it and it was kind of like hey you want to do a wonder would you what do you think about doing a wonder woman story and then we were like yeah i think we could do that for some reason and then uh and then i i just emailed the editor and they were like yeah you can do one why don't you pitch one and it just kind of happened and uh well, we but we a couple really of them that the editor really really doesn't like was it scorpions uh no it was uh it it was uh uh, uh no um centipedes there there's a guy there there we yes. pitched three different stories. One of them was um, one of them was the one we did uh, with uh, her going on sort of a, a secret mission to Apocalypse. Then, right. uh, and another one that was uh, about uh, what's his name, the Scarlet Centipede, or something like that. It's the most ridiculous uh, old uh, Wonder Woman villain, or what? You of know, course. they're all ridiculous. Exactly. I was, well, was going to um, say, yeah, Robert uh, Cadigan was nuts. It's not the most right. ridiculous. It's you know, it's 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 seventy well, percent ridiculous. There. Up there, it's yeah. up there. But it's yeah, you know, he's like a, a centipede guy who robs banks and and he carries a gun in every one of his hands, you know. So <laughs> hundred guns. So anyway, like uh, yeah, Christy was just so like, I um... yeah, I guarantee you, Mike Sikowski or whoever did not draw a hundred arms on this guy. <laughs> but the um, but like uh, yeah, no. So we pitched one of the uh, a story with him and uh, the our, our editor uh, was like, we're not doing that one. You're gonna draw a scary looking centipede. <laughs> so <laughs> somehow that just went off you the table. Scary centipedes. That 
was is is Christy is it Christy yeah, Marcy? Christy, she's, the, uh, Christy. she's the she's the editor of the yeah, Sensation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was wondering if it was her or it was Jim Chadwick because yeah, no, uh, Jim does yeah, no, this one is Christy. Uh, cool. Jim is kind of the overall editor of that stuff now. Got it, got it, and that makes sense. Good for Jim. I always every and I and I've never met Christy, but uh, Jim and I get along well. Every time I see him, we end up talking. Yeah, to she's him. she's yeah, cool I, to work with. She's, she's, yeah, we just uh, saw him over at uh, DC. Had an open house thing. We went over there. Saw him. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. You know, they moved to Burbank. I don't know if you've... Well, yes, yes. I do know. Yeah, that I know. That I remember. Um, and uh, we live right near there. And they just they just invited, like, everybody kind of locally to, you know... Yeah, but that's nice. ...do an open house. Yeah. We went into the... I, we probably are... Maybe... Or maybe I talked about this on something else. But the... Um, uh, we... They had a little tour of the library, you know, where they have all the, you know... They're, they're yeah, the actually, library no, and they have rare stuff in a case and all yes, that and all that was that was so amazing. Cool to see. Sure, I bet. So yeah, you know that was infamous in New York. So the is it a kind of a showroom kind of display in yeah. in Burbank? Yeah, they moved all they moved that the exact thing out there. You know, um, that's great. Uh, it's uh, yeah, they have copies of uh, you know these like. Action Comics number one and uh, and like the ash can of Action Comics. Uh, wow! Where there's like three of them in the world, and it has some random yeah, yeah. witch lady cover on it, and uh, uh, you know more fun comics and and you know a bunch of cool little uh, little things. It was it, I was uh, you know I, I you know I act very cynical about all this stuff, but I was and then I was like totally fascinated, and as soon as like uh, you know. Old historic stuff came up. I was uh, I was I was absolutely fascinated. That's cool. Did you demand to see the Bruno? Uh, I always forget his last Fremiani. name. Fremiani. Uh, yeah. Yes, the Bruno Fremiani section. Well, they all, that of course be the I that's the Doom Patrol demands on DC Comics. I was being, I was being very. <laughs> I must see the Bruno <laughs> Fremiani stuff. Now. Very political. Yeah, well, the polite request is all, as, as far as we could go there. <laughs> Wait a minute. All right, both of you say that no. again separately. Karina, go. Oh, Karina. just uh, I think polite requests are what you give DC, not uh, not demands. <laughs> and, and what did you say again? Uh, that if I make demands, they're not going to let me do the the uh, patrol comic. <laughs> All right, there you go. That's true. All right, fair enough. I can appreciate that. No, that's cool. What like was it just a hangout or whatever? Cash bar, I imagine it was. It had to. No, be they. I've seen it. Look, hey. There are ah, I said that. <laughs> there are companies. Look, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, no, no, it was nice. I don't know. We've barely done it before. We just. I think it's because uh, we, we're uh, uh, you know in proximity. We're just creators <laughs> in proximity, so we were invited. That's nice. I, I think that's great. I'm totally teasing. I think that's fantastic. That's very very cool. Um, no, and honestly, the digital stuff is among DC's best stuff. And by the way, I'll even say it. I, I read several of uh, the uh, the new books last week, and and liked several of them. So uh, you know, no, yay DC, good for you guys. Go <laughs> oh, team you mean the relaunch type books? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't gotten to any of them yet, but you know. God, I I, I just spoke to just spoke to Rob Williams, the uh, Martian Manhunter writer, and oh, yeah. Heath, Heath Course. Oh, yeah. Heath Course is going to come on and talk Bizarro with me, and you know. But on back to your comics. You guys have a graphic novel coming up. Uh, called the Crooked Man. Yes, we do. It's uh, tell me about the Crooked Man, please. It is a. Uh, it's from uh, Image and Shadowline, uh, Jim Valentino's imprint, and it's a 
awesome. a treasury sized, like a treasury edition sized uh, book. Uh, and, um, it's a it's an original graphic novel. It's set in 1906 San Francisco, uh, and it's sort of a, rev- a a kind of pulpy revenge crime thriller uh, that takes place during the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Cool. So it's uh, you know it's very um, you know there, there's a lot of uh, big. <laughs> Big epic earthquake disaster stuff going on, and uh, but it's but at the heart of it, it's a, it's a sort uh, a sort of struggle between these two guys, uh, one you know who uh, um, uh, you know one one of them uh, is a uh, sort of family man moved to San Francisco uh, um, after serving in uh, in the military during the Boxer Rebellion uh, in turn wow. century China, and yes. uh, and uh, the uh, uh, the a guy kind of comes out of his past and uh, to uh, um, uh, to take revenge on him for something that uh, that happened during the war. Wow, very cool! And obviously, you know, I'm assuming you know just the complication of an earthquake dictated that you wanted to do 1906 San Francisco. Yes. Yeah, but yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, that's cool. That sounds no, that sounds really interesting. That's very cool. Is it like 96 pages? How, how long? Is yeah, it? yeah, it's uh, yeah. Basically, yeah, it's uh, I mean, okay. the, the book is 120 or whatever, but it's uh, yeah, it works out to about that much story. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah, uh, Betty but there are big, uh, yeah, and Elizabeth Brightweiser is coloring it. Fantastic. Um, she's doing oh, man. work. Yeah. And, well, yes. Yeah. You've worked with her before. Didn't you guys work on Hulk together? Yeah. Yeah. She colored all of the um, uh, Marvel stuff that I did. Uh, oh, OK. Like, there you go. Everything I, you know, the Atlas Hulk and uh, that other one. Secret Avengers. Uh, oh yes, yes. We, uh, uh, we, you know, we all the stuff at Marvel basically was with her. So um, okay, uh, you know, so we have a whole, you know, a working rapport and everything already. And uh, that's awesome. Uh, and I love, I always love her choices for retro stories because I'm pretty sure she did the Captain America story they did with. Um, the 40s uh, hero, the Patriot, when he took over. Yeah, that might have uh, been. I yeah. think might have been with Mitch. Uh, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, I don't, you know, and much like you were saying, even in Invisible Republic, uh, just that that kind of subtle choice of change to give kind of a. And I and it's funny. I was thinking more of uh, photography, like when you see those old uh, Kodachrome pictures in National Geographic in the 30s and things yeah. that literally like more rose-colored kind of color right. that was being used in early color film. Well, I mean, one of the things with, I mean, one of the things what, that Jordan and I talked about for Invisible Republic for the stuff in the past was uh, William Eggleston, a photographer who, you know, uh, you know, shot color stuff in the 60s and it all has a very particular sort of feel and tone to it and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, being able to talk to him about uh, about that stuff and him, you know, being with it and, and, uh, you know, being able to take the, you know, take that simple sort of reference point and, and run with it. You know, that, that's really good for, uh, with uh, Elizabeth for, for Crooked Man. It's, uh, I, I think that one of the early notes I gave was, um, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, I found some like, uh, uh, 1906 era sort of you know comic strip stuff that had a kind of palette to it, and uh, you know uh, that doesn't it doesn't directly relate to what's actually in the book, but just as a sort of tonal piece. Uh, and uh, but you know but you know she's pretty good, and so we we you know we're pretty uh, pretty much winging it uh, 
otherwise. That's cool. And I'm always impressed with uh, the creators and stories that Jim Valentino coordinates for uh, Shadowline. I mean, he always, I think, makes really interesting choices. Absolutely. Yeah, and we, we did a book. We Our first book, uh, Heathen Town, Heathen Town? Uh, was through Jim, and we've wanted to work I didn't really know that. something. And so it's, you know, this this book is sort of years in the making, but it's, uh, um, you know, but we're happy to have another book coming out from, uh, you know, with Jim. That's awesome, man. I, you know, and I've talked to Jim at conventions, and I've never had him on a long form word. You should have him on. He tells great stories. I know. know, He, he's, you know, he's (laughs) seen and known all these people, you know, from, uh, from, from comics. You, you should definitely have him on. No, he is, and really, it's funny of, of the uh, original founding, you know, image guys that I, uh, uh, among the ones I haven't had on yet and stuff. Jim is one of those guys, and I'm like, no, I really got to talk to Jim at some point. Yeah, he's fascinating actually to talk to. Yeah. And. But Crooked Man is available to, uh, you know, to pre-order now. So, you know, if, uh, um, you know, go to my uh, Tumblr and check out the preview or just, uh, you know, Google it or whatever. And, um, and, uh, uh, you know, I put several updates of uh, different, you know, different little, you know, peeks at the at the book and previews and stuff. And uh, uh, I I would uh, I think it would be it would be great if uh, if people would pre-order the book, which you still can do. That's cool. No, that's awesome. And I love that Treasury Edition size. Yeah. You know, sadly, I was one of the original consumers of said uh, Treasury Edition books <laughs> when they were coming out back in the early 70s. They were sure. among my first – that was my first Fantastic Four and my first adventure books were the Treasury Edition books, yeah? Yeah, it's a gr- – and it's – you know, the fact that it's bigger – it changes the, you know, I mean, it's a 96-page graphic novel, but the pages are significantly larger. You're telling more story on these pages, so sure, it's not, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work out in quite the same way. There's more story to tell, and there's more, you know, there's more that you can play with scope and, uh, you know, the big scope, but also the intimacy uh, of having, you know, many pages on panels on a page, or, uh, you know, or or having an enormous two page spread, you know, so, uh, you know, there's there's a whole lot that you can do with that format. I haven't seen uh, people in uh, Spencer Tracy, San Francisco. I don't know if it holds up. Uh, it, I've seen it. It's it's not great. You know, it's, no? it's not the best. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I, it's, it was years ago though. I, we, we didn't revisit that for the Crooked Man. We're not looking to, uh, uh, you know, what the, uh, Burbank sound stages looked like, you know, <laughs> trying to do a little more, you know. <laughs> um, and you, uh, well, it was just a, it was an, op- it was an opening to get back into movies. No, and, absolutely. And, and, because, you know, having you on and stuff, it's honestly, and I said this to Hill, uh, Hillary was just on a, a few weeks ago. And also I told him at the convention as well, C2E2. It's it's really I I would love to do a, a scene missing it just hasn't uh it's just been tough I mean I just coordinating time and uh, when I do have you individually I can do many scene missing episodes so what have you guys seen lately? Um, a lot of what we've seen I mean we've we've actually seen a, a couple of new movies uh, you know sort of unlikely as that may be. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, well, we saw Mad Max, but I've talked about Mad Max on that 11 o'clock thing too, uh, probably. Yeah, I direct people. No, and I, no, I will direct people to hear you talk about that. And I mean, at this point too, yeah, I just think it's, you know, it's been out for a month and everything. So yeah, people, people have either likely seen it. I, I'll, I'll confess to you, I have not seen it yet. And I know I'm sure. What is wrong with you, John? You know, like, honestly, the best movie in a decade. 
Just this is what stop. I heard you say. I heard you say it, and yeah, I, I believe you, and I do want to see it. I, you know, honestly, I did. I saw Road Warrior and unfortunately Thunderdome in the theater, but Road <laughs> Warrior was amazing. I, uh, and, I like this movie oh, better than I like Road Warrior. I, okay, and, and that's what I hear. No, and everyone is just congratulating Miller at seventy to make such a great natural effects movie, and and showing yeah you still can do it the old way, and it's and it's frankly more impressive. Yeah, and, I mean I don't, I think that everybody plays up how much this is the stuff in it is practical a little too much. I mean, there's, there's a lot of visual effects stuff in there, but, okay. but like it, uh, but I think that it's more, a more a thing of, uh, showing that somebody with, who knows what they're doing can use every tool they have and, you know, and do it in a very, you know, exciting visceral way that doesn't feel like, uh, you know, that that's involving and forces you to, uh, you know, to, to you know, it's like he takes your head and shoves it in the movie, and it, and it, you could, yeah, makes you look at things the way he looks at it, and I that's very very exciting to me, uh, you know that you know that he's able to do that and tell uh, and tell a story, and there's almost no dialogue in the movie, and yet it's uh, you know it's smarter and there's more depth to it than uh, than a lot of other things. That's awesome, and I'm hoping that you know now that you get ten nominations for best picture, and I know. Oscars mean nothing, but it would be cool to see, especially given the time of year that it was released. If by next year, hopefully, the Academy is smart enough to remember. Yeah, I don't think they will. They and it didn't make enough money. You know, if it if it made tons more money, then maybe it would. Um, but uh, it okay. would get some attention. Oh, is, is it? Did it just do okay? It did, it did okay. Great? You know, it didn't. It didn't. Uh, uh, you know, set the world on fire. But I mean, that doesn't matter to me at all. You know, I'm no, I understand that. Excited. Oh, sure. I don't even really care if they make another Mad Max movie or not. I'm just very, very excited to have uh, gone to a movie and, and loved it, and and uh, and much less an action movie and loved it. I mean, that's I love action movies. I love, uh, you know, I, I love everything about what it takes to uh, to make an action movie and I love being the audience of them and I you know and it's so rare that anything does it really well I, think I hear you man the thing that you're forgetting about the academy and uh, the chances this has is that everybody always says oh people just give the ballot to their wives everybody's ah. wife is going to love this movie yeah <laughs> they just saw it yeah <laughs> No, but seriously, why? like, well, yeah, why? I mean, um, you know, I've, I read tons of reviews from people that like took their moms to see it. Everybody's mom loved this movie, and everybody's that's daughter cool. loved. They're this strong movie. female characters. It's the, right. um, I mean, that's that's a lot of what the what the movie is about. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the people are uh, in love with Charlize Theron's character, and she's a great character, and is, uh, you know, uh, is is. Like just one of the great action movie characters. Very cool. That's cool. Well, and it, it just—it's—I I happen to hear uh, Kevin Smith uh, talking about it on one of his podcasts, uh, specifically about Miller, and you forget how versatile this guy is. Yeah. That you know he made yeah. the Babe movies and he made Happy Feet or whatever the animated movie he right. made. Yeah, and uh, you cannot. Like, uh, you know, he totally confounds some kind of auteur theory of, yes. you know, uh, of, of uh, you know, only, you know, being able to fit into some sort of category. Right. The noir guy, the action film yeah. guy, whatever, you know, yeah, like the Walter Hills or the even the Scorsese's or whatever. Although Scorsese has proven he could do more than just the wise guys on the corner. Well, so. Yeah, definitely. 
<laughs> you know. But no, that's well, but that's the great thing, and that's when you and again a guy that I would I wouldn't necessarily call him unassuming. I don't know what you I mean, really, just because probably being in Australia that he just isn't thought of as, you know, one of the great Hollywood directors. But then you step back and you look at the the resume and it's like Wow, these are all great movies and all very different movies too. So yeah, he's a he's pretty amazing. And again, coming up with this movie at seventy. So yeah, oh, that's I mean, what... I think that part of it's also that he hasn't. It's not like he's made a movie every year. You know, there have been huge gaps. Uh, True. And, uh, he, you know, he spent years working on that Justice League movie that didn't happen. Right. And, you know. Right. Um, but uh, but I don't. You know, I I don't. You know, and I don't think that. I'm not in love with everything he's done, but I, you know, but I really love that he is such an individual director who just does the things that he wants to do. Agreed. Absolutely. I saw a great documentary on Saturday uh, that I had heard about. And actually, you and I, I think, even talked about it on Facebook. And either you, because I must have, like, subconsciously had heard that this was made and was just asking a few months ago, hey, did anyone ever make, like, a good movie about the canon uh, films. Oh yeah, that's right. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and either you or somebody is just like, here's Electric Boogaloo, and I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> Which I haven't so, actually seen yet. I um I. It's great. Yeah, I want to. Um, Fantastic. I'm totally interested in it. <laughs> well, and apparently they've also made their own uh, documentary of some sort uh, called The Go Go Boys. Okay. And I'm cur- and I'm curious to see that because I think they were uh, concerned that you know they could tell their own story. Better than, you know, somebody independently doing it. But God, just the people they got to talk about it. Sybil, it's great to see Sybil Danning today, of all people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she looked great. And, but no, we got very interesting stories. But they did long talks about her and Sylvia Crystal and the Chuck Norris movies and the economics behind, uh, Sylvester Stallone's movie Over the Top <laughs> and, and what went wrong with Superman 5. Uh, or four, Superman four, Quest for Peace. Yeah. But it's, it's fat, you know, it, it, it was really interesting. And the other thing is, you can't deny, I mean, the quality was obviously not there, but, um, A, they just cranked out product, and it's product that, like, continue to get played all over the I place. Suppose, uh, you I mean, cannot deny that they made movies, I'll say that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Then, like, if, if, if Ed Wood had somebody writing checks all the time, and it's just, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and I mean, at least, you know, the Chuck Norris movies, for what they are, all right, you know. You mean, <laughs> I like, psychotically right-wing tripe? Yeah. yeah right. but, but <laughs> isn't that interesting? Yes, but isn't that interesting? I find yeah, that Yeah, no, it is interesting. Actually, I, feel, I think the reason that this is, this that we started talking about it on Facebook is that I watched a documentary, or whatever you want to call it, like a, maybe it was a television, long-form like television piece on them from, like, 1986, like, from, at oh. the time that they're doing all this stuff. So okay. like, I, I thought that that was, you know, I mean, for perspective, that's that's kind of an interesting thing to track down is, you know, because it's talking to Chuck Norris and these people like, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, Lee Marvin and whoever at the time sure. uh, about these movies that they're making and uh, and and talks about them in the context of of 80s movie making. And uh, it was a BBC thing, I, I think, or it was a it was a British television thing. I'm not sure. OK, uh, but, OK. Um, uh, but th- that's also worth checking down, for, checking out for context. Yeah, I would like to. I'd love to see that. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing, and I mean, they talked about that in the documentary as well. That they kind of, 
made a, a classic Hollywood decision of, you know, the studio system back in the day, you know, MGM had its group of stars. Warner Brothers had its group of stars. We need that as well. So it's like we're in the Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson business. Right. Although they all, you know, I think part of the thing with that documentary, though, was that they were, you know, it was like on the cusp of them trying to make better movies, trying to make more prestige movies, you know? Yeah. As Yeah. Later in the later as they went on. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not that much later, you know, like in just yeah. a little later <laughs> in the 80s. I mean, they uh, yeah. like 52 Pickup was one of those uh, that Frankenheimer directed with the uh, um, uh, and Margaret and uh, Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, yeah. And we watched that recently, and it's not a bad movie. I mean, it's no, it's a solid movie. It's not bad at all. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I'll agree with that. Yeah, I, no, it's Scheider. No, Scheider made a bunch of like nice, tight little crime movies, and there were a couple other bigger, ambitious ones that don't register with me. To be honest, I was more happy to see Shabadoo from the Breaking movies, both yes. Breaking and Breaking Two Electric. <laughs> and it's like, what did happen to Shabadoo? Well, here we know, now you see a modern day show. Yes, now we can tell the story. So, so that was interesting. And then I haven't seen it yet, but I bought it this weekend. Uh, the Jodorowsky, uh, Dune oh, document. Yeah. I did see that. How is it? Um, everybody else loves it. Um, <laughs> oh, you're killing me. Talk to me. What happened? I just don't like him. I don't, I don't think he's a great director. I, I mean, I, and I don't, I mean, and it's interesting to see all the stuff. It's interesting to see all the, um, uh, the Mobius the art, art and, you know, Jean Giraud art and all, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, um, uh, Oh, know. Mobius and Jean Giraud, I gotta ask. Is that, you know. What's that? I said, oh, Mobius and Jean Giraud? I was I, kidding. It, Mobius, comma, Jean Giraud. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, Mobius, or, or for people who, uh, uh who are, uh, in the know, I'm just, I'm just explaining to them that I'm, I'm fancy enough to, uh, uh, you are to, fancy. To, to say what his real name is. <laughs> the, um, uh, the, and mispronounce it. The, um, no, it's like, uh, it, all of that stuff is interesting. All the stuff that, you know, but Yordorowski is so colossally full of shit and it's, ah. it's like, uh, it's, it's sort of entertaining. And then it veers over into, I mean, at times into just this guy's a giant semi-talented creep. And, you know, uh, I mean, have you actually, have you seen his other movies? Are you a fan of his other movies? No, I've, I have. Uh, no, I've never seen his movies. I like his comics. I find his comics interesting. Well, I like Mobius. <laughs> I mean. No, I mean, Jodorowsky's though. Like, yeah, uh, right. Humanoids released a bunch of graphic novels within the last 10 years. And I know I've seen like. I can't remember the name. I, I know El Topo was the movie. Well, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, the Meta Barons and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah Meta Barons, but th there's a Western that I really liked, and I can't remember. Oh, yeah. Um, right, right. Yeah, Meta Barons is, uh, I, I, I found it at least interesting. Yeah, you know? I, I, I mean, I just think he's, you know, uh, I don't I don't really think that there's much going on behind his, uh, you know, his kind of uh, pompous <laughs> thing you know i mean well, he's not even pompous he's kind of like a kid you know uh yeah. being mischievous you know and um the uh, and you know i mean in incredibly pretentious to me i mean i think i think that his movies are are like sort of by definition pretentious they are they are pretending to be about big important things and uh not succeeding and not really about them and really just kind of shallow glosses on this stuff. I'm, I guess I'm guessing I'm winning a lot of friends in, uh, <laughs> in, in the uh, fans of Yordorowsky camp, but I'm not, I'm not, oh, a, I'm not a, um, not a fan of his movies, but it was, it, the documentary is definitely interesting and definitely worth seeing for just seeing the, um, 
how all that happened and what, you know, yeah. uh, what, you know, the, that movie that almost was, but I mean, his movie of Dune was not, you know, he, you know, he kind of gleefully, 14 hours. He gleefully says that he didn't read the book, you know, that he wasn't oh, really God. interested in it. And, you know, I just, so I, don't, I don't respect that stuff. You know? Yeah, I, no, I, and I, Karina, I agree with you, and I know that's that's certainly, I'm sure, how the three of us felt with Tim Burton and Planet of the Apes, you know? Yeah, right. sure. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. But, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, the, you know, if you don't, I mean, I don't think that he had any respect for the source material, and I don't think that he had any, I mean, you know, Yorovsky and this, yeah, yeah, and Burton, too, but the, but, like, the, um, uh, I guarantee you know, I mean, I just, and there are things in it where he's, you know, he's kind of obnoxiously creepy and I just, I just don't, I don't, I don't like his movies. I don't think that there's anything going on in him besides sort of pretension and shock value. And, uh, uh, and, and I don't think, I don't think the movie, his Dune would have been any good. I think that the, the documentary about it not getting made is pretty interesting. Understood. What were we going to say, Karina? Oh, just that uh, I guarantee there's more going on in the novel Dune than there was in Holy Mountain. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like the movie, the documentary? I she actually did, hated she Holy to Mountain. Watch it. No, I hated I, Holy Mountain so much, and it made me so angry that I lost that amount of time watching that movie that I made him wait until I was out of town for him to watch that hilarious. movie. That's <laughs> very Dune movie. God, so, I uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I meant to look on. My uh, DVR, because, and as we're talking, I'll see if I can grab it. Uh, but I know I, I DVR'd a documentary that was on Turner last uh, last week, and I, I wasn't sure if it was about a casting agent or what. I'm looking um, now. The one about, um, yeah, that, the, the kind of... Uh famous well, New York casting agents who represented Well, no, because that was the I know that was the uh, HBO one. Yeah. No, maybe it is. It's uh, is it was, was is that Francis Marion? No, this is no. This is about the screenwriter. This is what I downloaded. Yes, you're, the one you're describing is about the casting director, yeah. and that's called Casting By, right. and it's on HBO on demand. And I know people can find that, and it's and that's great. Very interesting documentary. This is called Without Lying Down. Uh, Francis Marion and the Power of Hold on, getting the full title. The Power of Women in Hollywood. Yes, and yeah. the Power of Women in Hollywood. That's what it's called. I've heard of that. I've heard of that documentary. I haven't seen it though. Fifteen years old from two thousand. Yeah. Uh, Chronicle the filmmaking career of Marion, the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood, man or woman for nearly three decades. And an Oscar winner for 1930s, and then it doesn't say. So, but I'm I'm curious to watch that. So no, you guys haven't seen that. All right, no, I haven't seen it. But I, I certainly let it, let us know. It, I mean, yeah. I, I, it's something that uh, I've I've heard of that documentary. I'd be interested. And I also picked up a Jack Lemmon uh, biography from the 70s that was uh, released around the time before China Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Which I think is interesting in terms of the, you know that because luckily then it really goes into a lot of his early stuff and uh, even his career, TV his early late forties early fifties TV career pre Mister Roberts right and uh, right. pretty pretty yeah pretty interesting and I've enjoyed reading that well, that's cool yeah we yeah, uh, we guys- saw um, we saw Jurassic World uh, it was garbage we saw um, yeah I didn't have an interest uh, uh, we, good, I'm glad uh, to hear. 
Uh, Karina Sorry. loves uh, dinosaurs. Uh, I've, I've I liked dinosaurs a lot. We, we actually rewatched the first Jurassic Park, and uh, and it held up way more than I expected it to. I, I, that's that's really fun. Karina, from a dinosaur standpoint, it wasn't uh, fun? No feathers. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but uh, also, I, I didn't like that they shot them. I'm really a softie, and like in the original Jurassic Park, there were two dinosaurs shot, and you never even saw if they actually got hit. Okay. And this was like, oh, boom, boom, shoot it in the head. And I was like, I can't watch four dinosaurs get shot. Wow. <laughs> like, if they're shooting so all the characters, were, the, the characters were all a bunch of jerks. They were bland, and they were a bunch of jerks, and you didn't like them, and you just wanted them to die. The and that's not what the... Wrong, yeah. You don't want a, a thriller monster movie where you just are you you're desperate for the lead characters to get eaten, uh, and and it unsatisfyingly never happens. Um, Understood. We uh, we saw some came running. Have you ever seen that? Uh, um, yes, indeed. Sinatra and uh, Dean Martin and uh, Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, Vincent yes. Minnell. Eh, didn't connect for me, but I could. It's one of those movies that uh, Martin Scorsese talks about all the time. Uh, the um, and I think that he had a thing about it in his uh, Journey Through American Movies documentary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like one of those movies that I've just meant to see forever and never got around to till recently. You know, there's some interesting things about it. I have a hard time connecting with 50s melodramas like that. Yeah, so, like Written on the Wind and Long Hot yeah, Summer. You know, and- there's something about it. It's just I feel like like that era, that, you know, that period in the 50s is harder to connect with kind of culturally or something than like yeah, any I, time. For- I, yeah, you're right. Well, and I don't know if it's coming home, you know, back from the war or what, what, you know, dictated that sort of. Yeah. Although there's a lot of coming back from the war noir. That's uh, a lot more True. relatable to me. I, I think that it's, I mean, I mean, part of it to me is that the, uh, is just how, you know, there's a lot of kind of, you know, sort of 50s repressiveness and misogyny that the movies aren't necessarily guilty of, but but they may be reacting to. And it's not – but I don't necessarily relate to what they're reacting to. You know what I mean? Like I'm not – I'm not, not – since I'm not coming out of that world, I'm not quite getting what they're going for. And I think that's part of it in Some Came Running. Yeah, it's like it, it feels sometimes like um, – like sometimes if you watch a film from another country that's not your native culture and you understand it, but you feel like you're missing the subtleties. We were just talking about yes. this the other day. Like I watch a 40s movie or even a 20s movie or pre-code movie, and I feel like, oh, I get it. I get the the nuance. And a lot of times in a 50s movie, it feels like – well, it's sort of like watching a movie from India or something where I understand the plot and I understand what's going on in the drama, but maybe I don't quite get the nuances of exactly what that little gesture meant, you know? Yeah. I understand. No, no, I understand what you mean. I don't know why that is either, though. It's odd. Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, are they reacting to, you know, like – like, would you say, like, God's Little Laker? Isn't that kind of part of that – yeah, I mean, I, yeah, and I think it's just I mean I I don't know I'm not saying even these movies are bad or whatever just that that no, no. it's a harder period of time and I think it also has something to do with uh, color coming in and CinemaScope coming in and things that people not 
uh, you know, they had color before, but just, you know, there, uh, a lot of these movies have a sort of detachment to the way that they're photographed. We don't, you know, and especially not watching them on a big screen, but watching, you know, watching them on a, you know, biggish television. You <laughs> can't, you can't connect to it the same way that like their, their thought in shooting it was that, well, these people are going to be so big. We can't go in for a close up. You know, the screen is enormous, right. you know? Right. Uh, and so, I, I think that that creates a weird detachment in a lot of a lot of movies from that era before uh, the '60s, when uh, you know when cameras got smaller and they were able to, um, uh, yeah, to really you know to get in there and tell the story more you know actively. I understand. That's interesting. It reminds me of early sound and how so many of those early talkies had to be. The, the launch, you know, like the, the medium shot, basically. Right. And just kind of static, and everyone's almost like on stage. Although that's all, I mean, you know, I'm sure there are tons of 50s movies that use, you know, that, that fall in the same kind of category, the big spectacle movies that use the camera better. But in the same way, those early sound movies, there's tons of early sound movies that are a lot more adventurous with the way that they're staged and the way they're shot than is the rap for those. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, I think that, there's always people who were able to find their way through that stuff and do interesting, cool things, even with the restriction. Understood. Too funny. I, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, that. Um, oh, I found a book that uh, it's old TV uh, from 1966, hmm. and it's and it's mostly a picture book, and it's called How Sweet It Was, and it's kind oh, of yes. a history. Of I have television. that book. Yeah, I have yeah, that book. Yeah. I think that. Uh, um, uh, yeah, um, Matt Maxwell uh, uh, gave me a copy of that book. Uh, a writer, a comic writer of uh, Strange Ways and uh, the kind of the oh. uh, horror western. And uh, uh, yeah, he gave me a copy of that book. It's a great book. Yeah, great pictures, absolutely. And and man, really like a ton of um, you know not just the obvious stuff, but like really like a lot of the anthology shows and um, so great you know pictures of like one time performances where. You know, Hollywood vets and, and young stars on the rise and stuff, you'll get like a, a snapshot. And then I bought two DVDs of Studio One stuff, and um, one of them is uh, the 1957 The Defender, and it's Ralph Bellamy and William Shatner as lawyers, and they're defending Steve McQueen. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and essentially, they, they, the, the story did so well, it kind of was the basis. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the pilot. But like two years later, it became the E.G. Marshall, Robert Reed early, yes. you know, drama and stuff, right. which is a very, very distinguished show of its time and everything. And then one of the reasons why Robert Reed hated doing the Brady Bunch, <laughs> because, you know, he was doing high, high power, you know, sure. quality drama. And then all of a sudden he's got to worry of Tiger 8 Kitty Cat carry on. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and then the other one was uh, Sterling, uh, two, two Rod Sterling Studio One stories, one called The Arena. With yes. uh, Wendell, Wendell Corey? Uh, yes, I've seen that yes. one. That's, uh, uh, wait, which one is that? Is that the Nazis in a cave one? No, that's um, uh, newly elected Senator James Norton must decide whether to use explosive information to destroy the career of his father's political rival. Yes, yes, that's right. I remember that. And it's uh, Jane, uh, the guy from Medical Center. What's his name? Um, I don't know. I can't remember his name now. Or no, he's in the other one. It's uh, the other one is the strike during the Korean War. An army major's will is tested when he's forced to issue an order that will result in the death of twenty of his men in order to save hundreds of lives. Yes, and, right. 
That James might Gale. be the one I was calling Nazis in a cave. <laughs> 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 I was off on a couple of the details. Just a couple. That's all right. Um, who's your artist again for Invisible Republic? Uh, <laughs> it's uh... <laughs> Shlomo. Yeah, I know. It's Wendell and, Corey, uh, right? Wendell Corey. It is exactly. And then, yeah, the Wendell Corey one, also uh, Chester Morris, uh, formerly Dick Tracy and Boston Blackie. All right. In the arena. I love this. And, no, I, you know, uh, they're on archive.org. There's a bunch of Studs Terkel um, interviews, and Studs was – and also a guy that's in that How Sweet It Was TV book because yeah. he was an early NBC uh, television uh, performer. But um, he interviews Chester Morris in the early 60s, and Chester Morris is touring – in um, either Inherit the Wind or Advise and Consent as a play and uh, was talking about, you know, the transition from being a leading man to a character actor. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It was really, really interesting and, and uh, you know, very candid and uh, it was cool. And, and you know, he kind of suffers the same uh, problems that, you know, we see today when a, you know, young lead, like a t- something that Tom Cruise is going to eventually have to face. He's been avoiding it so far. Sure. We'll see. We'll see what happens, you know, in the next couple of years or so. But yeah, you know, when you're when you're too too old to get the girl, but you know, and you got to move on, like William Peterson, right. my my uh, good acquaintance, right. who went from you know being radio leading friend. man, <laughs> my radio, exactly, you know, that's fair, exactly, my radio friend William Peterson. Um, yeah, when he came to us, he's like, hey man, I'm in I'm in this new Donnie Wahlberg movie, Fear, and he's like, I'm Reese Witherspoon's dad. And I'm like, what the hell's going on, man? You're not supposed to be the dad. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, that's the reality, man. Yeah, it's being a working actor. Exactly. So um, there you did go. you see Magician: The Astonishing Life of uh, and Work of Orson Welles? Uh, that documentary? No, it's the new one. I mean, it's not. I mean, not yet. Yeah, it's, it's the Welles Centennial, so yeah, I'm not surprised. I hadn't heard that was coming out. Go on. It's it's not great. I mean, we just watched it like really years ago. Um, it's kind of worth it just to watch the clips. I mean, certainly it's entertaining sure. to see him, you know, uh, uh, bloviate and bullshit about, you know, uh, ev- you know, pretending to say something profound every every time they turn a camera on him, uh, which is hilarious. And I love Orson Welles, and I love hearing that stuff. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, you know, as a documentary, it's sort of a mess. I mean, there's not there's not saying anything new. It's not really. Uh, it's it's a little bit of a wasted opportunity. It was uh, it was directed by this guy Chuck Workman, who always would do those um, uh, those mon- you know those sort of montage uh, pieces for the Oscars. You know, whenever they have okay. a big yes. montage clip thing, he directed yeah, this, yeah. and uh, okay. it's like. You know, it's interesting enough. I guess if you don't know anything about Orson Welles, it's worth. Yeah, I think that's watching. who it's for. I think if if you are curious about Orson Welles and you like, you know the name and you've seen Citizen Kane, but you don't know anything about him, I think it would be interesting. Yeah. Sure. Although even at that, I feel like it gets muddled up quite a bit. Uh, it's it's weirdly yeah. like. I mean, it's like. It's arranged into, you know, like decade long chunks of his life, but they barely ever are able to kind of coherently stay within those periods. And like they're clips from all over the place and it's sort of misleading what happened when. And that's probably because I've read like every Orson Welles book out and know too much about Orson Welles to appreciate it. So maybe you're right. Maybe it actually is for people who don't need to, uh, you know, need a documentary no, but- about like, you know, his unfinished 
you know, Moby Dick movie or something like that. I understand. And I, you know, the same thing happened to me with uh, the people versus John Lennon. Um, my nephew was so like excited and thrilled to talk to me about it. And I was like, yeah, man, I, I, I read all this. Right. I mean, it, it, yeah. there was nothing new presented. And that, like you said, yeah, I, I just felt like, well, all right, I knew all that. Or Bob Edwards, the old NPR uh, morning show uh, host, yeah, who's now on Sirius and XM, yeah, he had done an Edward, he had done an Edward R. Murrow biography, and I'm like, oh, I'm really looking forward to hear his perspective on Murrow, and it was a by the numbers Edward R. Murrow biography, and I'm like, well, I've already read like three that are much better than this, right, right, yeah, so no, but, I, I get you know, that. I, I guess it is. You know, it is probably unfair uh, now that we've all pointed it out uh, that uh, you know, yeah, may, maybe maybe somebody needs an entry point into uh, sure. to appreciating the work of Orson Welles, and um, may, maybe this would uh, convince some people to go back and see uh, uh, Touch of Evil, one of the greatest movies ever made. There you go. Was it a straightforward biography, or did it focus on him doing like the Mercury Magic Show and things like that? No, uh, it's just it. It was. It's basically a big clip show. Uh, okay. It's like a. It, it's like a. Like it's like a TV profile more than it's yes. uh, a real documentary. Yeah, you know? I understand. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I understand that. Um, were we talking about uh, just seeing uh, F is for Fake, or was it with somebody else that? No, but you know, I've seen F is for Fake. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I, like I really, it. Like it. I think it's great. I like it a lot. Yeah, I, I think like it's it great. And there's, um, a, I mean, they kind of summarize it in an entertaining way in this documentary, but you know, uh, uh, but yeah, I love that everything about that you know, doing a misleading sort of documentary like that. Definitely. No, that is one of his more interesting movies. And Turner, you know, of course, because of last month being the Wells Centennial, they, they showed a lot of great stuff. Um, so is Magician, did you see it in the theater or did it, has it already come out on? Uh, no, DVD? it came out on, on, you know, I mean, we rented it, a Blu-ray of it, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'm sure it. it's out on iTunes oh. and stuff. Now I just remembered another documentary I just seen and that's uh, the Wrecking Crew. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I want to see that. That's the that's I, the one that guy's been working on. The the son of uh, of one of them's been working on for years. Yeah, the the son of the guitarist, and it's yes. an Italian guy, and I forget his I forget the uh, Tommy Matola, and that Tommy Matola. Not Tommy I forget. Matola. Oh, Definitely not. But Tommy uh, yeah, it, but uh, yeah, I'm dying Tedesco. to see that. Yeah, Tommy Tedesco. Yeah, and yeah, the the backup uh, musicians who played on pretty much everything from the 60s and 70s. Like, they were the real musicians on The Birds, Mr. Tambourine Man, yeah. and they were the, you know, a lot of the Beach Boys songs, and, and to Frank Sinatra and commercials. And, like, you know. Right. And for Phil Spector at Gold yes. Star and all that stuff. Yeah. The, um, uh, I, yeah, I read a book about, um, about the Wrecking Crew, like, a couple of years ago. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm totally fascinated by that whole level of, uh, I mean, I'm reading a book now about just like, uh, you know, about like, you know, radio in the, uh, in, uh, you know, in LA in the sixties and the, uh, you know, and uh, the music scene and how they interacted and stuff. And I'm like, I'm, I'm totally fascinated with that, especially about the, um, the part, you know, with the Wrecking Crew stuff, just that, that kind of, you know, they, they were people who went to work and, uh, you know, and did their job and, uh, you know, basically, you know, like uh, you in movies, you call them below the line people, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, the workers. Yeah. The worker bees basically. And yeah, it was like, yeah, I came up with the baseline on Sonny and shares. The beat goes on. No, I got my hundred dollars for the session. Yeah. And I went, yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that was it. Yeah, no, absolutely. 
And it's and no, it's fascinating. Absolutely, man. Yeah, no, I, 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 you know, yeah, and I, I read a book about them a while ago, and I've heard that guy, uh, the guy who made the movie, on a couple different podcasts being interviewed about this uh, uh, over over the last couple of years. So I'd be excited to see it. It's on video now. Is it available? It's it's still. I I, I think it finally comes out on DVD um, either this month or next month. Um, but it's uh, I, I bought it streaming. Okay. And, oh sure. And watched, yeah, I'll, I'll and, do that. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was good enough. I mean, I, I thought it was I give it a B plus. I okay. think it was perfect, <laughs> but I de- but I do think it's worth watching. And what's the name of the uh, L.A. radio book? Oh shit, I don't have it in front of me. Now I can't remember. Oh, no worries. Well, email it to me. Later. Yeah, yeah, I will. Um, okay, but I think it's uh, Radio Days or something, isn't it? No, like, it's not, not that though. But it's something a little generic sounding like that. But um, okay. uh, well, what was the problem with the Wrecking Crew movie? What was the downside? Kind of, I, I know. I'm thinking. I, I guess, kind of the same thing that we were saying about, you know, the John Lennon or Orson Welles ones, where it's like some of the stuff I already knew, and I was hoping to get a little bit deeper. And also, based on a lot of the clips that I saw um, on YouTube promoting the movie when it finally was starting to hit festivals and everything, and I almost wonder if the DVD is going to have more, you know, stuff that they just didn't put in the final print, which. Right. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, I'm sure it was a nightmare of clearances for the guy. That's as you, I'm sure, heard on those podcast yeah. interviews. Yeah. yeah, that's what he was saying. That all the radio uh, record labels were being so shitty right. about you know, and it's like, hey man, you know, all I'm asking for is you rep, you know, let these people like let let it be known that yeah, this lady, this grandmother, was the bass player on the beat goes on and a bunch of other big like bass lines of, of popular songs. And then, yeah, come on. Right. So I'm glad he got it. I'm glad it, he did get it made. Cause yeah, from that standpoint and the fact that it took that long, I give him a lot of credit for making it at all. Um, Look, yeah, I don't know, uh, I don't I know just, why you're, I don't know why you're being so critical of this guy and his movie. Because this, <laughs> this movie is just out there introducing people to the wrecking crew who, who haven't read the books about. You're right. You're right. <laughs> no, you know, remember, uh, I'm sure did you guys see standing in the shadows of Motown? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that was the Funk Brothers story, and it's, you know, pretty much the same kind of story about the Detroit guys yes. and women. And that was, you know, again, fascinating. And, I, and maybe because there was a little more performance in that one, and maybe, again, maybe he couldn't uh, have them perform the songs because of clearance. I don't know. Right. Well, but they're also they're studio musicians, so there's not live performances to call for the, you know. Uh... Well, but like Standing in the Shadows of Motown, they actually did a, a benefit concert. Where a bunch, you know, a bunch of uh, modern artists sang along with the the yeah, funk brothers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you know, and that was kind of you know, whatever. But it doesn't really get at the idea of the Wrecking Crew. You know, I mean, the whole idea no, you're is right. that they're studio musicians, and so the thing that they do is just, you know, the work for oh, yeah. stuff in the studio. They're not live performers. They didn't go on the road with these people, except for you know, obviously some Glenn Campbell or whoever may have you know, worked, right, but. And Glenn Campbell's fascinating in the movie. He is, and it's great that they got him. Fortunately, before he got sick, because I yes. know he's got really bad Alzheimer's now. Unfortunately, which is right. just right. just tragic. Yeah, I've yeah. heard about that. Yeah, well, and and just because of his career, because I, I, you know, was a little kid, and my dad was a big Glenn Campbell fan, and liked him in the Rhinestone Cowboy era. And I'm like, all right, whatever. And then I, you know, got to appreciate him hearing his earlier stuff and then also learning about his days as a studio musician yeah. and all the different bands he played for and everything. So that, you know, including touring with the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. Right. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Man. No, I uh, no, I'm like, hey, Glenn Campbell, I'll be damned. I didn't know. That. 
Yeah, it's oh, interesting. That, uh, that book you're talking about, Turn Up the Radio. Okay. I finally remembered. Thank you, Corinne. I would appreciate that. That'd be lovely. Uh, what else did I see lately or hear or read? I don't know what podcasts have you been listening to lately. Um, you, said, you said the Carson podcast, I've, of course. I have sadly and weirdly listen to almost every episode of the Carson podcast. Oh, I did too. I'm out of, oh no, uh, and he hasn't posted a new episode since April. Yeah. I, actually, I, don't, I emailed I'm the not guy. Even sure what, like, I'm not a big fan of Johnny Carson, exactly. Like, I, I, I kind of appreciate him. I, you know, I'm an enormous David Letterman fan. And, Me too. But like, I, uh, you know, I, I've had, I've like, when the, when the show was on when I was a kid, I wasn't interested in it at all. I mean, like, I, I would watch it for somebody who would be on it or something, but I couldn't really relate to the show. And, uh, and then, and I still kind of feel like it's kind of the old square thing that's going as middle of the road as humanly possible. And that was his intent. That said, the fact that this guy was like everybody's, uh, you know, felt like, you know, everybody's friend, yet the man himself was completely closed off and anti or not social and, right. uh, um, cold. and cold and difficult and all. I am fascinated by all of that. I'm fascinated I by the difference between the public and private Johnny Carson. Did you see the American Masters documentary about that? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, and, and that's uh, – well, two things. Being a little bit older, I was like a little kid when in the 70s Carson was – it was kind of the hangover of hip Carson of the 60s. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I barely remember him doing his show in New York, but I do kind of remember it. And um, seeing old tape and everything reminds me of that Carson, so I get it. And he was my dad's letterman. And especially coming off of Steve Allen and Jack Parr, he really was, or, you know, he's the, he was the Jimmy Fallon of his time. He absolutely, you know, and that's why people make that Fallon comparison to Carson. So to young Carson. Um, and, you know, I agree with you. The private stuff is really scary and eye opening and fascinating. But I just, uh, I, being the broadcast nerd that I am, I love all of these talk show hosts and I'm fascinated by Steve Allen and Jack Parr. As much as I am Johnny Carson and Letterman and the like, um, the Bill Carter books are just I love reading those. Sure. Uh, the guy who wrote The Late Shift for Late people Shift. listening yeah. and um, the, the one he wrote about Conan and uh, and Lennon was as good, too. And I know he's doing a current one, you know, another one after that that will be coming out, I'm sure, soon. And Bill Zemi, uh, a Chicago journalist that does a lot of entertainment pieces and stuff has been working on it forever on a Carson biography. And I wonder if he's going to get into the darker stuff that the documentary didn't. Right. And there is a lot of dark, you know, kind of violent stuff in uh, Carson's uh, early days. Right. That, well, and uh, there's it, this Henry Bushkin book yes, as well. Yes. Right. The, his, I read it. His lawyer. I, so how, like, I, I am very tempted by that, but I'm also slightly horrified to, you know, for how sleazy uh, giving this sleazy guy money. So how is it? Is it, is it worth it? Is it horrifying enough to be worth it? <laughs> well, if you want the horrifying one, I would do the King of the Night one that that Lawrence Lerman wrote. Okay. Because I read that one. And that one had the most warts and went back to his early days and even his uh, Nebraska days and stuff, just everything. And I don't know how much of that is, you know, over the years has been vetted. But the stuff we do know, yeah, that's icky enough. Bushkin came in 
like in 1969, and he was out of the picture by 85, and it pretty much just covers those years. Okay. And there's, uh, there is stuff in there. You know, he did an interview with, of all people, Joan Rivers to promote the book. Okay. You know, about a year before Joan passed away. And, th- and that's on YouTube. Oh, awesome. And, uh, yeah, and I, and I would say watch that, and that might give you a better sense of whether you want to read the book or not. Um, but I, uh, but no, I liked Lawrence Lehman or whatever his name is uh, that did King of the Night or King of Late Night, um, and I thought it was, I thought it was really creepy and interesting. Yeah, that's the that's the dark, dirty one. Um, but yeah, I like the the Carson podcast itself. I love it. I, yeah, I, I think it was, it's I, really interesting. I mean, I, 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 and I certainly like, uh, you know, hearing from a, a lot of these people. I mean, I, I feel like the, um, you know, the the guy who does it might be a little bit too you know it's like he bleeps out the foul language and it's a it feels yeah. a little like he's walking on eggshells a little bit but um, i agree you know have but, you listened to Gil- have you listened to gilbert gottfried's uh, podcast i have i have um i like it it was like another it thing you told me to listen to so i listened to it oh, okay i couldn't um, remember and uh I love it. I, I, I like it. it mostly, you know, when it just gets into a super repetitive thing of his bit over and over and over again, it's less interesting than when he's actually interested in something and they talk like normal people. I like I that agree. better. Yeah. He had the two documentarians that did all the, uh, Turner. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of interesting, although they felt they seemed a little like, they they were Precious. so print the legend it was a little much for me. <laughs> uh, the um, but like you know there's there's some interesting people who've been on there like I I, I always like a perspective on you know somebody who's a you know not a not a star somebody who was a a working actor or something and and you know a, a more uh, down-to-earth perspective of, of what, you know, what their point of view of whatever thing that they were a part of. I agree. Paul Dooley, the character actor, was, I yeah. thought, pretty interesting recently. Yeah. And, and, and you know, hearing Lake. him. Yeah. <laughs> there, uh, there you go. And, and talk uh, a lot about living in Toluca Lake and exactly how close he lived to things in Toluca Lake, which is very interesting. There <laughs> I've actually go. seen him in Toluca Lake multiple times. <laughs> so That's I, cool. I, I, could, I could justify this. <laughs> It's true. I love that. I love that guy. Uh, he's one of my favorite character actors. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's great. Uh, um, and I also they. Uh, I just had listened to the second part today. Um, they had an anniversary show where they had like kind of a roundtable, and it was Craig Bierko who plays uh, Max Bear in uh, the Cinderella Man movie with okay, Russell Crowe, and he's the bad guy in the three the terrible Farley Brothers Three Stooges movie. You'd know him if you saw him. Character actor. I know who the actor is. Okay, so Craig Bierko, Paul Schaefer, yeah, um, yeah, Bill Bill Persky, the sure. co- Persky and Denoff, Persky and Denoff of Dick Van Dyke and That Girl fame, among others, and Kate and Allie, of course. Um, so those three, a Seinfeld, Tom Leopold, I want to say the Seinfeld writer. Huh. Yeah, I mean that. And and, and yeah, I, maybe it was just there four, and then and then uh, Gilbert and uh, Frank Santo Padre. But yeah. great, yeah, just a great conversation of them throwing down on uh, on celebrities and just little anecdotes here and there, and it was cracking me up. Yeah, very, that's very interesting f- stuff. It's the it's it only gets difficult when somebody yeah. from Batman is on there and they endlessly talk about uh, um, Cesar Romero. Uh, Cesar Romero. <laughs> yes, not, I understand. It may have been well, funny once, and I understand that his shtick is pushing things beyond the point where they're funny, so that they're funny again eventually. It just doesn't always happen. 
<laughs> I like their mini. I like their mini episodes too, where they do movie recommendations. Yeah, it's fun when they. Uh, yeah, yeah, when they they recommend movies and stuff. I, I like yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah, it's no, not no, a bad I, podcast. It's pretty good. No, it's all right. Alec Baldwin does a good podcast. I had I heard him two weeks ago. He released a new episode of. Oh, Here's really? The I didn't. I thought those were over with a long time ago. I have a feeling he does them seasonal. Well, and I know he stopped around the time that he lost his MSNBC show. Okay. Uh, right. Yeah, that's right. And I have a, and maybe maybe it was just that time that he just needed to like you know take a step back for a while or whatever. But um, they played one of some public panel interview that he did with, or really not a panel, but just the two of them talking, him and Dustin Hoffman. And it was a career kind of interview with Dustin Hoffman. And it's on the feed. So people should listen to that because real interesting stuff about uh, the movie Lenny in particular. Oh, I'm a huge and, fan of Lenny. I'm a huge fan of me too. Uh, Lenny and, and uh, Bob Fosse's movies. Yes. You know, really interesting stuff. Read the Bob Fosse uh, book uh, biography that came out like, you know, a year or two ago. Sure. Really interesting. Did Fosse did Fosse direct Sweet Charity? I know that like yes, he did all the he did. Korea, Korea. He did. Okay, that Charity makes sense. Was his it, first movie, and it was kind of a uh, it was sort of a uh, humiliation for him because it wasn't he you know he oh, yeah. kind of went too far in a way, and and you but know totally. it's, it's sort of you know uh, kind of like you know it's indulgent and it kind of, and it didn't make money, and he was uh, and he had you know he was such an aggressive guy that he made. You know, he, you know, he, and he was coming off of being, you know, really popular in Broadway and was, and, sure. was, you know, gonna make a deal for himself that, uh, you know, that, that was worth doing. And, and then the movie didn't really work. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting though. It's an interesting movie though. It's, I agree. It's dark in something, but it, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it falls, it certainly falls apart in a lot of places, it falls apart in the end. But I, I find him very, very fascinating in, in, Ways that you know, we watched um Well, we you know we rewatched all that jazz recently. Uh huh. Also an amazing movie. Yes, I agree. I think all of his features are are interesting or great. You know, there's only I agree. five of them. You know, so right. I know. No, I agree. I know, and that's kind of how I feel about Kubrick a lot of times, where even the failures are interesting, or if yeah. not failures, just the movies that don't connect with me. I still right. want to see them, right. and um. And and in the case of Fosse, no, you know, um, I don't know. I, oh, you know why? Paul Cornell has a new comic out about uh, a rock band that uh, you know gets into devil worshiping, and then it turns out they really they really do connect with Satan, and uh, it sounds it sounds very funny, and it sounds like it's going to be a fun series. And it reminded me of Sammy Davis Jr. and his period of devil worshiping, which is all real. But then further, I was thinking about Sweet Charity and his little like you know, uh, number, the rhythm of life. And yes. it doesn't connect on a hippie level at all. Okay. It really looks like middle-aged people that really don't understand what's happening. It looks like people hippie. from the Johnny Carson show. It does. <laughs> yes, yeah. It does. Absolutely. No, you're right. It does. It has that variety show. Ah, the kids like this, right? Yes. All right. I'm going to, all right. I'm going to wear beach. Okay. Or like I heard someone say, like when Bob Hope and Lucille Ball would pretend to be hippies. I think that was on, uh, Gilbert Gottfried show. Oh, yeah. yeah, but any, but but that said, like Sammy gives one of like his greatest performances doing this Fosse number, and I think, I mean, it's schmaltz, but he dances his ass off. Yeah, I, and I, and I, I I have to admit, it's a weird goofball cheeseball scene, but I do like Sammy's performance in that scene. The dancing stuff is always 
kind of crazy and interesting. Uh, the, I mean, still the, I mean, the movies that I think are great movies though, Cabaret, Lenny, uh, sure. and all that jazz are, um, yeah, those are the three. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are what is amazing. The- and also, you know what? I think star 80 is really underrated movie as well. I forgot that Fosse directed yeah. star 80. You're right. Holy oh, shit. That's an amazing. Movie. It's just so, and it's so nihilistic and gross. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, everything, you know, but I still think it's, I think it was just too, it's too much for people in a way, but it's, or just too hard for people to take. But, uh, yeah. but I, I think he's so, and, you know, the, um, you know, all of the stuff that people who are people my age, you know, uh, growing up as film nerds, uh, thought of as Martin Scorsese stuff, the camera moves and the, uh, and the cutting, so much of that comes out of, Fosse and uh, uh, particularly out of Lenny. Uh, I mean, if, yes. you know, if anybody's a fan of, you know, of, of Martin Scorsese and, and Martin Scorsese has openly said that he loves Lenny and loves Bob Fosse's movies. It's not like he's pretending, but the, um, but if you, if, you know, if you love those seventies and eighties Scorsese movies, you know, watch Lenny, you know, and watch, wow, that's uh, good. you know, and, and all that jazz and, and see where yeah. he's getting a lot of that stuff. That's true. That's really interesting. And you'll love then what uh, Hoffman says about making Lenny. Uh, really interesting stuff about Fosse and also just his own approach to doing Lenny Bruce and everything. Right. Uh, it's, it's neat. It's, and, and God, and also you forget how good and, and really he, he gives it up for Valerie Perrine and says she is so great in that movie. And it really is her best performance. She's great though. She is really good. She, absolutely. It, everybody's really good in the movie. And it's, but and, you know, like it, it, she's just this like statuesque playmate of a, you know, bod and, and it's shame on, you know, I'll, I'll say it as a knuckle dragger that it really, it's like if Jane Mansfield was actually a really great actress, I, I, I don't know. I mean, and really that's unfair to Valerie Perrine. Because she is a hundred times the actress, obviously, if not a thousand times than Mansfield was, and also just more naturally beautiful. Well, and I don't. It, but it's that. Well, it's also a different period of time. It's in the seventies, and you're and she's and, sure. and it's it's the material, it's the director, and it's the, right. it's the project, and it's that she's given the opportunity to be to give this very open performance and not and she's not you know it's not shtick and it's not you know and no. she can she can you know uh she could just be very natural and and open in the movie in a way that that I think is great and you're not you know she's you're not going to see that in can't stop the music or whatever you know <laughs> like it, it, there's not no, room for that <laughs> Or Miss Tessmacher, obviously. In, in oh, sure, yeah, but that's just uh, you know you don't you don't judge Gene Hackman by playing super broad you know Lex Luthor, or maybe that's, if that's the only thing you've ever seen Gene Hackman in. But he's you know he, he's that's that's not what he is. You know he's you know he's he's a great actor no, you're right. playing. Broad. Yeah, but again, but again, we allow that for men in a way that I don't think we do for women, and uh, and that's what I'm saying. That like you're right. Or Steam Bath, you know she's great in Steam Bath, the uh, the TV. Uh, production of that with Bill Bixby and yeah, yeah. Hector Elizondo. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's, that's some good stuff. All right. So there you go. All right. We did good. We got our, we got our scene missing uh, stuff in there. <laughs> All right. Oh man. No. Uh, well, uh, back to basics, uh, in, Invisible Republic, uh, the trade is coming out in August. Yes. It is in, it is in the current previews. And, and uh, yes, and we're taking, uh, the month off of August for the single issues for Invisible Republic, but the second arc starts in uh, September. Okay. 
taking the month off for the trade to come out, and then the first issue of the next arc comes out in September. Excellent. Very cool, very cool start, truly. You know, like I said, forgettable artists, but other than that, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if, if we, if, look, if we could afford somebody besides Wendell Corey to draw it, we, we would get them. Um, and I like Wendell Corey being on there. You should sign a few books as Wendell Corey. Uh, sign my book. Yeah, well, I'll say that and, uh, you know, and our, 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 our letterer, uh, um, Sylvester Casadero is, uh, is, is another member of the, of the team that I often forget to mention, but, uh. Oh, I'm sorry. Should, yes, please. We should, we should put him in there as well. And then, uh, the Crooked Man, um, is, uh, you know, the, the Crooked Man OGN, uh, is, is available to pre-order right now. So, uh, by all means, uh, you know, uh, ask your, uh, your, your retailer about it and, um, you know, because it's an OGN, so it's always harder to get people to order a book that hasn't come out in issues before. So, um, sure. you know, so it's all the more important for people to just, you know, ask for a copy of it so that they can be sure to get it. And it, does that come out in August or September? That or comes out in, in August. In August, okay. And September is uh, Vampirella and Aliens. It should be, I think. Okay, close <laughs> but enough. But it's, it's, it's soon. It's, in, it's either September or October, so. Okay, very cool. I Excellent. should have come to this podcast prepared. Not, well, clearly, uh, so should I. So, <laughs> I, I, I people. Wait, who's the artist on Invisible Republic again? Uh, Gabe Hardman. <laughs> right. <That's> right. <laughs> I think it's Gabe Hardman. <laughs> oh man, I know. Well, you're. you're I thank you for putting up with my stupor. That was fun. We we yeah we righted we righted the ship. We had we had a little turbulence <laughs> early on. That every now and then I get a brain fart early on, but I. I try to course correct. So no, and I think we gave people good uh, reading and uh, viewing uh, lists as well for their uh, scre- uh, scene missing uh, yeah, fodder. So, so exactly. you know, I, and, and we had, and, and I feel better about it knowing that I had Hill on last month and stuff. So uh, I, I hope to see you guys in uh, San Diego just casually as yeah. we usually do. Yeah, we'll, yeah. We'll at least run into you at some point. Very. And, cool. You're not uh, doing heroes or anything, or we're not. not no, I mean we just can't make it all the way over sure. there and we just have to put finish these books the the you know even crooked man needs to be finished finished you know and you know because we have to, these are image books we have to put the whole fucking thing together and send it to the printer you know i understand man yeah so, yeah uh it's it's a lot of work and um so we're trying to just focus on getting these things done and before we do any other are you doing okay you did all right. You're able to hit those deadlines and everything. We've been hitting the deadlines, but it's you know it's really a challenge. You know, it gets you, it doing a book that I mean, Karina's writing four freelance things. Um, <laughs> some of them just aren't announced yet, so we couldn't talk. Understood. About. And okay. uh, you know, I'm trying to finish up everything on on Crooked Man. I uh, I have uh, I'm drawing a monthly book, co-writing a monthly book. Um, you know, and have to deal with the, you know, with putting the whole thing together. Uh, you know, it's not even, you know, it's, it's a lot more work than just drawing a book and then sending the pages off to, for DC and Marvel or something. Sure. And, you know, and we do all the back matter and do all that sort of stuff. But that said, I mean, it's all rewarding stuff. Of course. But it's, you know, it's, it's getting to the end of this first arc. It's, it's, we're getting into, burnout territory because i do boards as well on things and you know i've had i worked on a movie through a big chunk of this arc and it's you know it's it gets rough 
Understood. Nothing you could talk about right now, obviously. Oh well, that was the one that I, I told you about it before. It was a Christian Bale movie, uh, based on the uh, John D. McDonald novels. Of, um, yes. Uh, okay. Is that are it, we okay to say that on the record or no? Um, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. It went down. It, it's not getting made. Like it. Oh. I worked on it for months, and it uh, and then um, wow. Christian Bale had. Uh, uh, some sort of injury and uh, pulled out, and so at the uh, last minute, like they were, they were already on location and ready to shoot, and uh, it's just one of those things that fell apart. You know, it just happened. So, um, you know, Jim Mangold was directing it. I like him; got along with him well. He directed the Johnny Cash movie and the Last Wolverine, and you know, it oh, just okay. it, it it fell apart. You know, I mean, it just happens, but it's it sucks because it's a movie that I would have liked to see. Personally, yes. that rarely happens. Yeah, you know? well, I know we talked about it off the record, so but we're okay to say, like, is it, you know, variety fodder that it... it yeah, yeah, enough? it's, I mean, it's it's known okay. that the movie, that Christian Bale pulled out okay. the movie went down, yeah. So, okay. I mean, it, it you know, it, I think he, like, had a knee injury or something like that, you know. Sure, and, no, uh, and it, no, things happen. It's, no, I'm bummed because, yeah, it was, uh, like you said, Johnny McDonald who wrote the Travis McGee. Yeah, uh, it is, it's a history. Travis McGee story. It's the first yeah. one, the Deep Blue Goodbye. But, and hopefully they'll get it on its feet again at some point, you know, and sure. uh, and get it made. Because the script was good, and, uh, you know, it was... Um, uh, you know, like multiple people had worked on it, and I think that Jim Mangold was doing the most recent draft. But you know, like Dennis Lehane and and Scott Frank had done passes on it. It's a good script, and you know, it's just too bad. Well, like I, I mean, I was going to say, like Jack Reacher and some of these other characters that have come to movies lately may not be known to the general public. But for you know, fans of the various characters and stuff, no, Travis McKee got a really long. You know, yeah, uh, book but life. It, you know, but it's really not the. It's a studio movie. It's really not the kind of movie that studios are making these days. And so it was an uphill climb to get it done. And then when, you know, uh, when you know some little thing, something goes wrong, the actor pulls out, and it just, sure. the whole thing falls apart. You know, no, it's I not understand, like that... making a Wolverine movie. You know, they they're right. dying for that. <laughs> they don't. They're not so interested in making uh, the movie I'd want to see. I, I understand. No, I, and I'm disappointed too because, like I say, I'm a, I'm a big Travis McGee fan, and I'd be fascinated just like seeing a Philip Marlowe movie attempted. I mean, it's like what are you, you know, knowing the character, it's like oh, I'd, I'd, I'd want to see that. So and then see if I would enjoy it or be disappointed, you know. And it sounds like I wouldn't have been, like you said. Do you like the script and you like the director? Yeah. So well, I don't know. Maybe it'll happen someday. But that's right, what I've we'll for quite a while during, you know, while still. You know, trying to do a physical a monthly book, co-writing a monthly book, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a graphic novel. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. No, I understand. So, that. You know, it's it's tough to stay on top of this stuff sometimes. And um, time for a vacation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. But I respect we'll see. You know, we're certainly going to get through the second arc of it before we take a break. A second arc okay. of Visible Republic before we take a break from it. Understood. All right. Well, that comes in September along yep. with. Uh, Crooked Man and potentially uh, the uh, or no is Crooked Man August? Crooked Man should be August. Okay, fair enough. And, uh, the- Down the line, Vampirella and Alien. Yep. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you. Always a pleasure, and uh, glad to pick your brains, and uh, look forward to the next conversation where hopefully my head will be a little straighter next time. <laughs> That's cool. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right, there you go, Gabe and Karina. I can't believe they're still talking to me after that little faux pas, but they are, and that's awesome. 
Uh, but it was great talking to them and great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed the uh, conversation today on Word Balloon. I'm looking forward to that Crooked Man uh, uh, book from Shadowline. That sounds fantastic. And like I said, Invisible Republic is just great. Word Balloon is brought to you today by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Excellent deals are happening now. You can get things like uh, the Black Canary and Zatanna Bloodspell trade paperback. Good Paul Dini stuff from the Streets of Gotham days. 42% off, just $8.69. My buddies Art and Franco have Oh Yeah Comics trade paperback volume 2 from Dark Horse. Time for Adventure. It's 42% off, $7.50. Enjoy Edgar Rice Burroughs' Jungle Tales of Tarzan hardcover. 42% off, just $11.59. You can get The Amazing World of Gumball. Trade Paperback Volume 1, 50% off, $7.49. How about Drifter? Trade Paperback Volume 1, Out of the Night, 50% off, $4.99. One of the big books that uh, managed to make a big splash at DC and continues to post New 52, uh, Gotham Academy, Trade Paperback Volume 1, Becky Cloonan doing some amazing stuff, 50% off, $7.49. And uh, you can also uh, reach back at um, the beginnings of the current Guardians of the Galaxy with the Annihilation Conquest Omnibus. The hardcover is 50% off and just $62.50. Great Abnett and Lanning stuff right there. And a whole lot more. More great deals are waiting for you at InStockTrades.com. John Sutcher saying thanks again for listening to Word Balloon. If this is the last episode you hear before the 4th of July week, uh, then you're really lazy now that I think about it because uh, 4th of July is still two weeks away. Shame on me. Uh, uh, we're going to have another show, though, before the end of June, so I, I hope you'll uh, stay with me and uh, enjoy some more great conversation. More newcomers uh, uh, coming this month in June and uh, more old favorites as well. So uh, And beyond, as we uh, head uh, closer and closer to San Diego Comic-Con and the like, uh, I can't wait to uh, see the people out on the West Coast, including yourselves. If you are going to Comic-Con and you run into me, please uh, make sure you say hello and give me the opportunity of uh, thanking you in person for listening to Word Balloon. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2015.